welcome to the Nauticast podcast, the one true chapter-by-chapter chapter podcast going through a Song of Ice and Fire one chapter week. I'm your host, Jeff, better known as Pretty Fish. And I'm your other host, Emmett, better known as Poor Clinton. And welcome to the 84th episode of the Nauticast, titled, You Can't Go Home Again, an analysis of Clash Kings Theon 1, in which everything goes exactly according to plan for our new protagonist of all of A Song of Ice and Fire, Theon, the ladies love me, Greyjoy. Everything goes swimmingly, and everything will continue to go swimmingly for our favorite Ironborn character. You are so right. And, you know, I feel bad because last week I called that Stannis was recently clowned. You know, actually, it's Theon who's going to be very much clowned in this chapter and in the next chapter and the chapter after that and the chapter after that. Just forever. (laughs) Well put, sir. The true king of clowns, Theon Greyjoy. We're so happy to have him here with us. Yes. Welcome, Mr. Theon. It's going to be so much fun to talk about you today. So, as always, this episode is brought to you by our small council, our hand of the king, Wolfman Zack, Grand Maester Tim Bob, Lord Commander of the Kingsguard, Mark N., Lord Travis, Master of Ships and War of the Waves, Sir Keith J., Master of Whispers, Lord Philip the Merciful, Master of Laws, Jancy O., Lady Commander of the Night's Watch, Lord Jean, Master of Coin, Arch Mr. June, Healer of the Lesser Poxes, Ragged Michael, Warren of the North, Nelson the Hammer, Prince of Dragonscone, Scarlet the Other Red Woman, and Mistress of Whispers, Lord Baby the Onion Baby, Lord Blackheart the Defiant, Master of Source, Lord Micah, Warren of the West and the Kraken's Bane, Lord James, the gym that was promised, the high bearded priest, the blue ringed octoling, Lord Jake, assistant to the hand of the king, Lady Zine of Lyrium, Hedrical, captain of the airship Arrogance, His Grace's High Inquisitor, Frank B., Lord James Stormborn, War of the Worldwide Werewood, Sir Jasper the Cruel, the King's Justice, Lawrence, Prince of Dorm, Richard, Sailor of Bravos, Kelly, War of the East, and Mistress of Old Bay of Crabs, Stephen the Steadfast, Master of Hounds, the Blue Winter Rose, Knight of Highgarden, Lady Stephanie, Lord Ryan, and returning small council member, Lord Anonymous. Welcome, counselors, and welcome back, Lord Anonymous. Thank you, counselors, very much as always. And our spoiler warning, as we say in all episodes, we'll be talking about all, we'll potentially be talking about all published books, that is the five novels, three Duncan novellas, histories, interviews, the Windsor Sample chapters, as well as Game of Thrones, a TV show. Anything and everything. Our question this week comes from Lord Micah, Warden of the West and the Kraken's Bane, one of our small council patrons. Hey guys, thanks for the podcasts. So excited for Clash, I reread it recently, and damn, it's so good. Hmm. My question could be for a Theon chapter. Could you rank from top to bottom who are your favorite and least favorite Greyjoys? They can be favorite in likability or in their character work, you decide. Well, if I start talking about the Greyjoys, I'll never stop, as this doc we're looking at attests to. So I'll turn it over to you first. How do you rank the Greyjoys, sir? This is so hard because as we were talking in our, our mini episodes we do for our small council and our High Lords and Ladies patrons, I, I have several different lists. So I guess like my favorite point of view characters, I would go Asha, Victarion, Theon, Aaron. Is there any other Greyjoys? Those are the four, right? Them's the four. All right, and then so those are my those the, the those that's my ranking for that. Then I would go from favorite point of view characters from favorite characters on down. It would be something like Quellen, who's not even on page. <laughs> Theon, Victarion, Asha, Asha and Thea and, and Victarion, Asha and Theon are are, are tied. Euron, Aaron. Some random asshole who like drowned in some river someday thousands of years ago in Ironborn history, three thousand tons of shit, and then Balon Greyjoy is my in terms of my favorite to least favorite point of view. In terms of my favorite to least favorite Greyjoys, so I, I think that's I think that's a fair ranking. I mean, I, I like all of the Theon Asha Victorian chapters in A Song of Ice and Fire. I, I find and you, you would hate this, but I, I find Aaron's chapters is at least his first chapter in a Feast for Crows a little 
dull? Is, is that fair? Or, or are you just like about to stab me from across the computer screen? It's fair. I mean, it's wrong, but it's fair. <laughs> it's an assessment that a lot of incorrect people hold. No, I understand. You know, the Greyjoy tone is not for everyone. And obviously there's a lot of different tones among the many different characters. But this is one house where I understand that some people don't get super invested in this side <laughs> of the story. But yeah, I, I very much am. And I love them all for a bunch of different reasons as POVs and non-POVs. The only one who isn't super depthful for me is Balon. Because you only see him a couple times. He's used very effectively in the context of this book and then immediately fades from relevance and dies like a damp fart off screen. <laughs> I love I love all of the POVs because they're very, very different. Theon is this kind of just descent into hell that he creates for himself. Asha, who's just great as this non-POV, perfect, charismatic, take-control person who just is everything Theon wants to be in Kant in this book. And then as a POV, she's surprisingly, like, kind of somber mm. and sad and almost depressed, given the context of what's actually happening to her in Feast and Dance. And it's it's not what you would expect from her kind of extroverted image, and I like that a lot. Victorian is just a great joke, as we've covered <laughs> times before, and will when we get to him as a POV. Just George going all in on, on the idea of, of a POV who can't understand what's happening around him, and the reader gets to vicariously laugh at him. Damp Hair, I think, is, is sorrowful in terms of his backstory with Euron being like the parallel to Theon stuff with Ramsay, but mostly, yeah, as a vector on Euron, and Euron is my favorite Greyjoy, just because I love... How George constructs him as this kind of cosmic horror villain invading a context that has no connection to that, really. I love how he puts on this political mask at first and feast, but George is seeding little hints that his real connections is something else and then brings that to the forefront in The Forsaken. And I just, I love that kind of writing and that kind of imagery in general and didn't expect it in Song of Ice and Fire. So Euron is just this kind of ever evolving revelation for me as a character coming across him in Feast for Crows, thinking about him more than The Forsaken and all the analysis that's come from that. So just, Maybe even not even as a character, Euron, just the, the the way information about Euron has been drip-fed to us has been something I've greatly enjoyed in the process of A Song of Ice and Fire, which is a, a unique category into itself. If I had to say which Greyjoy is the most dramatically resonant and well-written in any kind of objective way, I think it's probably Theon. But that's only because Theon's gotten the most attention. That's fair, and he has the most number of, of chapters in terms of Ironborn point of views, because I think Asha's got four, Victorian's got three and then one from the winds of winter and i mean we we don't know how many chapters these these folks are going to have in the, in the winds of winter i think i've said in the past that i imagine that we'll have the greatest share of ironborn point of view chapters come the winds of winter given theon asha who are both confirmed to be in the winds of winter victorian who's also confirmed to be in the winds of winter aaron who's also confirmed to be in the winds of winter so we've got four of the of the samples <laughs> chapters from the winds of winter have been from ironborn point of view characters so that's i'm looking at, at, a, at a lot of, of of ironborn characters in and I'm looking at a lot of Ironborn chapters in the Windsor. So I, I, I had a question though about about Euron. Um, you're at, you mentioned how you feel like that George is drip feeding that that Euron is more than what he appears in Feast for Crows and really gets kind of dr- turned up to eleven in the Forsaken. I was curious in your own personal journey of discovery. When did you start to kind of glom onto this idea that Euron is more than he appears on at, at least on page in a Feast for Crows, where he just seems more of the same if, if you just read it. If you just read it at a surface level, like Euron just seems like kind of a another version of of Balon, a, a more charismatic version of Balon, obviously, a, a much more smarter version than Victorian, but otherwise just seems more like an Ironborn guy. Like, when did this like kind of genesis for you start? I, I always suspected Euron was going to get up to some shenanigans involving Danny and the dragons and Valyria because that's the stuff he talks about. I think I was I read the. Uh, uh, black Eye Shining with Malice essay by Maiden Mir that came out a few mm. years ago on Tumblr. 
And that, that definitely kind of coalesced a lot of ideas around that for me. It was when I started thinking about Euron specifically as Blood Raven's rogue protege, and that being not just an incidental backstory detail, but the key to his character and basically the reason he exists. I think that's when it really started falling into place for me what Euron was about, because that, that connection to the more northern side of things and the green seer side of things, that's entirely in subtext. Hmm. And I think that's, that's what really interested in me, really interested in me and Euron was thinking about him as someone who was, uh, talking explicitly about fire, but implicitly about ice. And that made him seem kind of important to me. And then that's when I started kind of taking more deep dives into thinking about connections to stuff in the world book and stuff going on in Old Town. But yeah, for me, that's, that's the spark of it. And always when I talk about Euron, cause I tend to a lot, that's always like the first thing I start with for people who either aren't familiar with his book character or read Feast for Crows once and aren't super interested in that side of things. I was like, think about him as evil Bran. Hmm. Think about him as someone who Blood Raven really messed up with yeah. and shouldn't have empowered. And now everything he's with doing with Bran is kind of trying to make up for what he knows he's about to unleash, which is his, his bad seed Euron potentially taking down the wall and helping the others, which is what I think is endgame is. But even if it's not that, I think thinking about him as, as the the dark side of that green seer north of the wall plot, I think is compelling. I agree. And I think that you are the person that turned me on to that stuff the most. So thank you for that. Because I've always looked at, like I said, I always looked at Euron almost in that surface level way of seeing him. It was just just another pirate, just another Ironborn guy that I got to deal with in order to get to the more interesting Jamie stuff from A Feast for Crows. So... Well, I do love those Jamie chapters, too, shockingly, in the Feast for Crows. But, I mean, yeah, that's what Euron wants everyone to think. That's why he wears the eye patch. It's mm-hmm. not because he needs it. It's because underneath it is the crow's eye, the black eye, the yes. one that's connected to the magic, as Aaron says at the King's Moot. And it works. Everyone cheers along when he's, he pitches his little story, but Damp Hair is the one screaming in his head that he's he's not that and he's not like any of them. And I think that's, I, I love, yeah, on reread especially, I think it stands out how George is balancing those layers. Yeah, it's going to be a lot of fun to read in the Winds of Winter, which I will not say is coming out next week. We have no idea when it's coming out. Hopefully someday down the road, man. I just, sorry, I'm not, I'm not going to wax anymore about that. God, because I could just. Jeff still has feelings. You got to be numb inside, buddy. I know it's hard with having a family and all, but you got to numb that shit. True that. So thank you to Lord Micah for the question. Really appreciate it. If you'd like to ask us questions, you are welcome to subscribe to us on Patreon at the $10 and above Sworn Sword or higher level to ask us questions that we'll, be, that we'll answer every week on the Nauticast podcast at patreon.com forward slash Nauticast, A-S-O-I-A-F. And for all $5 and above patrons, our full analysis of Zack Snyder's 2009 film Watchmen is coming your way next week. And yes, for those who have been asking, we will, we will have some initial thoughts on the first episode of The Watchmen Show airing on HBO, because that episode will air just the night before we record our episode on the film. But our focus will be either to praise or bury Zack Snyder, I mean his movie, and, t- <laughs> and talk about the original graphic novel from the 80s, which inspired the movie. You know, I'm also like really excited having just rewatched the director's cut of Watchmen, which is excellent amazing well uh, i mean you'll have different ideas that's okay and working my way through the dark pathways that are alan moore's writing and dave gibbons's artwork for the graphic novel you know i i, I was saying this in, in our in our little pre-episode but i'm rereading the novel for the first time in about 10 years and yeah i'm very very excited about doing this episode even though it's not a song of ice and fire i know some people probably won't enjoy it because it's not a song of ice and fire but really there are other books out there besides these five fucking books and the other novels and novellas and all the different stuff in the Song of Ice and Fire. But there's great books out there. Read something else besides the Song of Ice and Fire, please, for God's sake. <sighs> there's a reason Watchmen ends up on the greatest novel of the 20th century list. It's because it really is that good. So it's always good to, to check it back in with that. True that. 
But enough about Patreon and Watchmen. It's now time to talk about Theon Greyjoy. Last time we checked in with Theon, he was being dispatched by Robb Stark to seek an alliance with his Lord Father, Balon Greyjoy, Lord Reaper Pike. Let's check in with Theon now in this synopsis and pupper fist at how awesome Theon Greyjoy's dick is and how successful his mission to Balon will be. Uh-oh. This whole chapter, is it's like listening to Eye of the Tiger and then having it abruptly cut off halfway through. Right, and then we get some clown music to kind of go carry us on into the end. Then suddenly Yakety Sax plays as Theon <laughs> flies away into the distance. True that. So here is the synopsis for Clash of Kings, Theon 1. There is no safe anchorage at Pike, but Theon Greyjoy wished to look on his father's castle from the sea, to see it as he had seen it last, ten years before when Robert Baratheon's war galley had borne him away to be a ward of Eddard Stark. Thus opens our first chapter from Theon Greyjoy's point of view, which absolutely foreshadows what's in store for Theon in these damp, dreary islands, ruled by by an idiot pirate and once in future idiot pirate king Balon Greyjoy. Theon thinks about how he watched Pike fade behind him when he was taken from here as a boy, and now he wants to see the castle again. So he orders the Miraham to make its way past the islands so he could see it. All this despite the difficulties of sailing in these waters and dangers lurking in the winds and rocks. But what does that matter to Theon? This is his home, and by the drowned god, his noble ass will go sightseeing, damn the dangers to the ship. And home... Well, it's a lovely little spot, beautiful and green. Uh, wait, wait, that's not actually, that's not accurate. The shore was all sharp rocks and glowering cliffs, and the castle seemed one with the rest of its towers and walls and bridges, quarried from the same gray-black stone, wet by the same salt waves, festooned with the same spreading patches of dark green lichen, speckled by the droppings of the same seabirds. Ah, Pike, covered in bird shit, such splendor. Theon describes the castle as looking like a sword stabbing into the ocean, the same ocean that had shattered the former large island of Pike into three smaller islands that waves foam and crash against. Drear, dark, forbidding. Pike stood atop those islands and pillars, almost a part of them, its curtain wall closing off the headland around the foot of the great stone bridge that leapt from the cliff top to the largest island, dominated by the massive bulk of the Great Keep. Gee, I'd sure have so much pride in a place that looks as beautiful as an unfinished fucking basement. We get more lovely descriptions of Pike and Green Lichen crawling up its walls, but hey, at least the Greyjoy banner is flying high atop Pike, even though Theon can't see the banner to be sure, but Theon is sure proud that the, the Kraken banner is flying high without any Stark sigil flying over it. Behind the castle is, of course, a fucking horse, the goddamn Red Comet, which Theon hilariously interprets to be, quote, his comet. Theon touches the letter inside his jacket that he had from Rob Stark, thinking the paper is, quote, good as a crown, and then the captain's daughter presses herself on Theon's arm, asking if the castle looks the same as when he last left it. Theon, doing his best Victorian pastiche, says it looks smaller because it is far away. Theon then goes to describe the ship that he's on. It's the Miraham, a, quote, fat-bellied southern merchanter out from Mole Town. It carries cargo, and its captain was a, quote, fat-bellied southern merchanter as well. The captain had kept his ship farther out to sea than Theon would have liked. If he was some awesome fucking ironboard captain, he would have gone right up under the cliffs, under the bridge between the two of the islands. <laughs> yeah, okay. The captain's daughter says it's windy, and Theon, oh, Theon, he decides to say... Windy and cold and damp. A miserable hard place in truth. But my lord father once told me that hard places breed hard men. And hard men, they rule the world. Just then, the captain comes up to the deck and asks if they can head to port. And Theon's all like, sure, thinking about what a fucking peasant this captain is and how he'd be able to lure this dumb shit in with gold. Then Theon starts thinking about how awesome the Ironborn are again, how Ironborn aren't dazzled by noble blood because every captain is a king aboard his own ship. And when you've seen your king shit over the rail and turn green in a storm, it was hard to bend the knee and pretend they were gods. 
Then he thinks that a real-ass longship would make the journey in half the time that the Mirham made, but he's here, and he's, yeah, he's not exactly unhappy with the Mirham altogether. It got him here, and he's got a whole lot, and he got a whole lot of sex with the captain's daughter, if you know what I mean. Theon puts Sarmer on the captain's daughter in the presence of her father, of course, and tells the captain that they are going below deck to have more sex, and then to let him know when they reach Lordsport. Cool? No, Theon, not cool. Man, you're such a fucking dick. The captain therein is the captain's cabin, of course, because the running theme of the first third of this chapter is how terrible Theon Greyjoy is. And Theon, still being a dick, gets off extra hard on the captain's daughter because of her father's disapproval. He also likes that this girl was a virgin when he first had her, but you know, bro, she's also a little heavy for his taste with splotchy oatmeal colored skin, but he likes that her boobs are big. Man, love that Theon guy, such a bro. Theon gets out of his wet clothes and the girl asks if he's happy to be back, asking how long he's been away. Yeah, he's happy and it was 10 years ago that he was taken to Winterfell as a ward slash hostage of Eddard Stark. But he wasn't a ward or hostage anymore. Oh, and please get naked, Captain Star, who, um, do we even get your name? Let me get a couple pages ahead here. No, apparently you were nameless, Theon. Awesome. The girl gets shy, but takes her clothes off, smiles, which leads to an all-timer by Theon. She looked rather stupid when she smiled, but he had never required a woman to be clever. Theon, I don't know about you, Emmett, but I, I think this is a slightly problematic thought, and maybe you should work on your ass before someone like, um, Ramsay does. <clears throat> the girl says she's never seen the Iron Islands, and Theon's all like, yeah, because they suck, which makes them awesome. And because, and everyone's either a fisherman or a miner, and they all argue about which life sucks more, which makes this awesome. And then the old Ironmen used to carry, raid, and carry off slaves, do all their shit work on the Iron Islands. So awesome. <sighs> the girl starts asking if she can come ashore with Theon, but Theon's all like, dude, you're just my side piece for the journey. Yeah, she can come ashore, but not with him. And no, you can't come and work on the castle or do cooking or some shit. Maybe if it was back in the day, Theon could make her his salt wife, but them's the days and them days are long gone. He says all this while getting handsy with the girl's nipples before biting one of them. The girl says that Theon can, you know, what a mommy and daddy who love each other very much do, but Theon wants to teach her something new. He wants a blowjob, and he finds that she gives one well enough for a first-timer. Theon thinks he might have kept this girl for a salt wife when the old way was around, but no more. So very sad. But the Ironborn can no longer put their thralls and slaves to work in the mines or out on the boats. The Ironborn themselves have to do such work. The fucking outrage, man. It's crazy. Every, especially when you consider what the Ironborn were born to do. War was an Iron Man's proper trade. The drowned god had made them to reeve and rape, to carve out kingdoms that write their names in fire and blood and song. Unfortunately, though, Aegon the Conqueror, or fortunately, actually, Aegon the Conqueror had put an end to the old way when he dispatched with Black Heron and Harrenhal. But according to Theon, expert Iron Man, everyone still talks about the old way. Hell, one of Balon's titles was, quote, Lord Reaper, while the Greyjoy's words were, We do not sow. Balon rose in rebellion to bring the old way back, but Robert Baratheon, in perhaps his only fine moment during his entire fucking reign, crushed Balon Greyjoy and his hope of returning the Ironborn to the old way. But now, now the time is ripe to bring it back. The kingdom was torn apart, and Theon the man would succeed where his father had failed. He comes right then and there, forcibly holding the girl's mouth in place because he sucks. Theon just sucks. Man, I just hate this guy the first third of his chapter. I hate him. Sorry. <clears throat> The girl asks if she pleased Theon, and he's all like, yeah, that's fine. Now go make me a sandwich in the kitchen, okay? Okay, fine. He doesn't actually say that. He might as well have said it, though. The girl says that Theon um, tastes salty and that she likes the sea, and Theon likes the sea, too. He had forgotten until he was aboard the Mirham. I must remember this, Theon vowed to himself. I must never go far from the sea again, he thinks very, very ironically, considering the end point of his clash arc. The captain's daughter begs to go with Theon again, but Theon's all like, no, you stay here. But she can't. Her father will punish her. Don't, don't you see? 
Yeah, fathers are rough, Theon says, but the girl's father should be happy. As many times as I've fucked you, you're likely with child. It's not every man who has the honor of raising a king's bastard. Such an honor. He leaves her there, looking at him, quote, stupidly. But who really is looking at who stupidly, Theon? That's my question for you. Theon heads up on deck, on the top deck, and sees the Botley Castle, which was now rebuilt with stone after Robert Baratheon burned the wood of the former castle to the ground. And below that castle was Lordsport, which Theon remembered last seeing as a war ruin. But now, it was mostly rebuilt, save for the Sept, which was still a ruin. Theon judges that the Ironborn had much taken up with the new gods after Robert went apeshit on them, but really, Theon doesn't give a hoot about the gods. He cares about ships, and he sees a lot of them. Some merchant ships, yes, but long ships are several dozen strong, running along the beach and all the, to the northern shore and out to sea. He sees a Harlaw ship, searches for some rando pirate named um, Ubron. Is that how you pronounce the name, Mamet? Is it Ubron and a ship Silencio? Is, is that it too? I, I don't know. One of those things. He doesn't see those ships. It's actually Euron in the silence. Okay, bad joke. I get it. He doesn't see those ships, but Balan's quote, Great Kraken was present. Had Lord Balin anticipated him and called the Greyjoy Banners? Um, I guess we're going to find out, Theon. He touches Rob's letter, thinking that Balin might have guessed why he was here and gotten up to speed ahead of time, but that doesn't make him happy. This was supposed to be his glory and his plan, and no one could plan better than very smart Theon. Or, or, or maybe this was all a defensive measure to give Balin a Victorian some old man caution? His uncle Euron was a different song, to be sure, but the silence did not seem to be in port. Thank Lord for that one, Theon. Man. What Euron would have done with you, boy, I tell you. Theon paces the deck of the Mirham as the ship makes its way to shore. He looks for a welcome party, hoping to maybe see Silas Sourmouth, Lord Botley, or Dagmar Clefjaw, but he sees nothing, no one, just small folk. Oh, and a drowned priest leading two horses down the road. Some of the small folk start shouting at the Mirham, asking what's what, and the captain replies that he's got cargo on board, finishing up with, and I brought your air back to you. Everyone stares at Theon, and he realizes that they don't recognize him. He gets angry before giving the captain a gold piece, telling the help to bring his things. Theon asks for a horse, and some innkeeper says, Sure, you could have a horse. Where are you off to? Pike, you fucking idiot. Oh, well, um, in that case, you should get going to reach the castle by dark. Here, the innkeeper will send his son to help. Your boy will not be needed, a deep voice called, nor your horse. I shall see to my nephew back to his father's house. Theon sees all the small folk bending the knee to a drowned priest and calling him Damphair, who's described as, quote, garbled and mottled robes of green and gray and blue, the swirling colors of the drowned god. A waterskin hung under his arm in a leather strap, and robes of dried seaweed were braided through his waist-long black hair and untrimmed beard. Theon has a memory from a letter that his father sent him, one of the few times Balin ever wrote him, about how Balin's youngest brother named Aaron had turned holy and become a priest. Uncle Aaron, he said doubtfully. Nephew Theon, the priest replied, your lord father bid me fetch you. Come. Love these beautiful Greyjoy rebellions. Just warms the fucking heart. But Theon has things to do first. He needs his, he needs his shit, for instance. The captain's daughter turns up with his package of, dry, of good clothing and she tries to hug him, but physical affection and touches for pussies. He turns aside from her and as she tells him that she loves him. I must go, Commander Shepard, uh, Theon Greyjoy says. Catching up with Aaron, he asks why Balin or his mom or some of the Greyjoy bannermen didn't come himself, but Aaron chilly tells him that it isn't Theon's place to question the Lord Reaper of Pike. Huh, lovely. Theon thinks that Aaron used to be a chill dude, but now he's very dissimilar to the Aaron he once he once knew. Aaron continues on to tell Theon that everyone is kind of gone from here because they're getting the Ironborn houses roused. Roused? Why? Why have longships ever, hoist, ever hosted? And then Dampere asks if Theon is into the wolf gods, and Theon's like, nah, man, he doesn't care about the old gods. So Aaron tells him to kneel and bow his head, which Theon reluctantly does. Aaron then proceeds to baptize Theon in salt water. Let Theon, your servant, be born again from the sea as you were, Aaron Greyjoy intoned. Bless him with salt. 
Bless him with stone. Bless him with steel. Nephew, do you still know the words? What is dead may never die, the unsaid remembering. What is dead may never die, his uncle echoed, but rises again harder and stronger. Stand. Back on his feet, they mount horses, wordless, and then ride away. And that really could have been the end of a Clash Kings Theon one, but no, we ride on harder and stronger. Theon asks if things have changed much on the Iron Islands on the years since he's been away, and Dampere's all like, shit's pretty much the same. Theon asks after Asha and his lady mother, and whether they're at Pike, and they're not. Your mother's at Harlaw, and your sister's on Great Wick, with her ship Black Wind bearing messages from Balon. But Asha will be, will be back soon enough. In Theon's second chapter, Theon knew about Asha and her longships, but he finds the name of her ship strange, given his knowledge of Rob's Dire of Greywind, so he remarks on it to damp her silence. So Theon tries another way to get a conversation going with Nanko Aaron. You were no priest when I was last taken from Pike. I remember how you would sing the old reading song, standing on the table with a horn of ale in your hand, bro. Uh, he didn't say bro. That's I'm sorry. That's just my intonation. Young I was in vain, Aaron Greyjoy said, but the sea washed my follies and my vanities away. The man drowned nephew. His lungs filled with seawater and the fish ate the scales off his eyes. When I rose again, I saw clearly. He is mad as he is sour, Theon thought. Theon thought Aaron was kind of the shit back in the day, but man, this guy is just shit now. He asks why the swords and sails have been called, and Aaron's like, your, your dad will tell you. No, no, Theon wants to know from Dampere. Well, well, Dampere ain't saying shit. Everyone's been sworn to secrecy. Theon is pretty fucking annoyed at this. He is a very strong warrior, you see, and if Balin, his father, plans to go to war, he better let his heir know. Oh, Theon thinks he's the heir? As to that, his uncle said, we shall see. Theon realizes he's getting insulted, and he gets angry, telling Aaron that his brothers are dead, and he's the last living son of Balin Greyjoy. Dampere spits back that Asha's alive, and Theon is aghast. A woman may inherit only if there is no male heir in the direct line, he insists loudly. I will not be cheated on my rights, I warn you. His uncle grunted. You warn a servant of the drowned god, boy. You have forgotten more than you know, and you are a great fool if you believe your lord father will ever hand these holy islands over to a Stark. Now be silent. The ride is long enough without your magpie chatterings. <laughs> Damn hair. Nice one, bro. Theon says, Theon says good and shut the fuck up, realizing that everyone considers him a Stark as he's been gone for 10 years. But Theon's no Stark, in his mind. He was a hostage, treated worse than even the bastard Jon Snow. And sure, Big Daddy Stark would try to be fatherly with him, but to Theon, Ned would always be the dude who destroyed Pike and brought war to his home. And Catelyn was even more distant and cold to him. And the Stark Wolflings hardly knew him, and it was only the two older boys who were more of his age. But John was super jealous of Theon, and Rob, well, he was like a younger brother of Theon. Prince, soon to be Prince, Theon recognizes that maybe he shouldn't mention that thought around his dad or uncle. Hmm. In Pike, in Pike it would seem the old wars are still being fought. That ought not surprise him. The Iron Islands lived in the past. The present was too hard and bitter to be born. Is the South going to start rising again? I mean, this is what this chapter is all about, right? Before he left the Greenlands, the Malisters had reminded Theon that nothing was ever forgotten. He enjoyed hanging out with Patrick Malister, but his dad, Lord Jason Malister, had taken Patrick aside and reminded his son of what the Greyjoys were and how Seaguard was a defense against their aggression. Hell, it wasn't that long ago that Jason Malister had repulsed an ironboard attack on the castle of Seaguard itself and killed Theon's brother Roderick during the battle. Patrick had told him this story over wine with Theon, and then they went wenching with the miller's wife. Hmm. Back on the Iron Islands, Theon and Dampere climb, climb a long path up bare and stony hills until they're out of earshot and eyeshot from the sea. They pass an abandoned mine, ride in gloomy silence until Chatterbox Theon can't take the silence anymore. He states that Rob is Lord of Winterfell. Aaron's all like, Stark's all the same, all of them. But Theon says that Rob broke fealty with the Iron Throne and has become King of the North. Dampere says that this is old, cold news, bro. It means a new day, uncle. Every morning brings a new day, much like the old. 
Yeah, but the Red Comet, not cool. It's a new age of wonders and terrors. It's a messenger from the gods. Oh, oh God, an opening and more, an opening for more comets, Red Comet stuff. Oh, great. A sight it is, the priest agreed, but from our God, not theirs. A burning brand it is, such as our people carried of old. It is the flame the drowned God brought from the sea, and it proclaims the rising tide. It is time to hoist our sails and go forth into the world with fire and sword as he did. The aunt smiled. I cannot agree more. A man agrees with God as a raindrop with a storm. You know, I forgot all, like how unintentionally funny all of Dan Bear's clapbacks are, because this is just a hoot. Theon thinks he's a raindrop and that this raindrop will be a king. <laughs> king. Okay, Theon, you want to go with that? Sure. Theon, raindrop Greyjoy, spurs his horse forward, and they arrive at Pike at Nightfall. The castle itself has still has some of the marks of Robert Baratheon's siege. Theon mentally points out the spots where Robert made his breach and, come, and came into the castle with Warhammer in hand, with Ned Stark next to him. Theon himself had been up in the sea tower watching the breach itself, but and sometimes he still has nightmares of the torches coming into the castle. The gate swings open and Theon returns, quote, home at last. Theon crosses the half a hundred acres of headland, passing stables, kennels, and outbuildings, and Theon knows the cliffs are to the south and he hears the waves crashing as he dismounts his horse. People stare at him with dull eyes, but Balin, well, he wasn't here, and no one else Theon knew was here to greet him either. A bleak and bitter homecoming, he thought. Aaron, though, stays bound on telling Theon he was only commanded to bring Theon to the castle no more. He's off to do the drowned god's bidding, and then he's gone. An old serving woman comes up to Theon, tells him that he'll show him to his chambers at the command of Balon, and Theon is relieved that someone knows who he is. But, but seriously, where is my dad? Well, he's up at the sea tower waiting for Theon after he's rested. He asks the old woman who she is, and she says her name is Helia. He, <laughs> hell yeah, hell, Helia, Helia. Hell yeah! She keeps the castle for Balon, and all the other people Theon knew back in the day are dead. Sorry about that. As It's as if I was a stranger here, Theon thought. Nothing has changed, and yet everything has changed. He tells Hell yeah to show him to his chambers, and she leads him to the bridge to the Bloody Keep, which it's not exactly what Theon was expecting. He thought he'd be going to the sea tower where his room with his Dalton Greyjoy pajamas were, but instead he's going to the Bloody Keep, which was kind of fucking ominous given that the room gods named from where the sons of the river king had all been slaughtered in their beds and then their dismounted bodies were then sent back to their dad a thousand years back yikes but great joys were not murdered in pike except once in a great while by their brothers and his brothers were both dead <laughs> nobody told Balin that all right it'll be a funny practical joke when you're on returns to pike in a feast for crows ah so funny a musty smell hangs in the bloody keep and theon realizes that it's been years since anyone's been in this room he orders hot water and the braziers lit and that the rushes get changed. They bring him water after a while, but it's only tepid, and it's salt water. He still washes all the dust for himself anyways, and then Theon gets in some kick-ass clothes, soft lambskin breeches of silvery gray, black velvet doublet with gray, with a golden kraken of the gray joys embroidered on the breast, a gold chain around his neck, and a belt of bleached white leather around his waist. Feeling fly, he decides to go find his father. He moves through the great keep towards the sea tower, crosses three bridges with the last one made of ropes and wood that sways underneath of him, which which scares him shitless, but he makes it through and gets to the tower, pushing a guardsman aside on his way in and climbs up the solar. He found his father seated beside a brazier beneath a robe of musty sealskins that covered him from foot to chin. At the sound of the boots on stone, the Lord of the Iron Islands lifted his eyes to behold his last living son. He was smaller than Theon remembered him, and so gaunt. Balin Greyjoy had always been thin. But now he looked as though the gods had put him in the cauldron and boiled every every spare ounce of the flesh from his bones until nothing remained but hair and skin. Bone thin and bone hard he was, with a face that might have been chipped from flint. His eyes were flinty too, black and sharp, but the years and the salt winds had turned his hair the gray of winter sea, flecked with white caps. Unbound, 
It hung past the small of his back. Man, George is really going all in with the description of Balin Greyjoy. Interesting. Balin asks if it's been nine years since Theon was here, and Theon's like, Dad, it's ten years. Ten! Ten! Come on! Balin asks if Theon is a man, and Theon's all like, big strong man, a big strong man, Dad. Oh, and your heir. Lord Balin grunted. We shall see. Balin comments that Theon has been Lord Sarks as long as he'd been Balin's, but Theon's all like, Dad, Ned's dead. And Balin agrees and puts in that Robert's dead too. The guys who defeat us are all dead, but Balin, he's alive. So who gives a shit? Theon steps up with his letter, ready to do good, but then Balin stops him cold. Ned Stark dressed you like that? His father interrupted, squinted up from beneath his robe. Was it his pleasure to garb you in velvets and silks and make you for his own sweet daughter? Theon gets all embarrassed and says that he ain't a girl, and if you're upset with my dress, Dad, I'll change. That bobble around your neck was a pot with gold or iron. Uh-oh. Theon realizes his mistake. He's been away for far too long. He admits that it was the gold price, and then Theon, great father, rips it off his neck because, again, guys, he's a really, really good father. So, so good. Then Balon starts bragging about how Asha about Asha and her axe and how her axe is her lover, but Theon isn't going to go around bedeck like, quote, some whore. So nice. It is as I feared. The Greenlands have made you soft, and the Starks have made you theirs. Theon says, nah, I'm a real Greyjoy. But Balon's like, well, who sent you but the Starks in their little letter? Theon says, it's not little, very, very loudly. Hmm. And the offer in the letter was something that Theon himself proposed. Balin is amused that Rob Stark is listening to Theon. He heeds me, yes. I've hunted with him, trained with him, shared meat meat with him, worded aside. I have earned his trust. He looks at me as an older brother. He, oh man, Theon, you're so fucking bad at this. No. His father jabbed a finger in his face. Not here. Not in Pike. Not in my hearing. You will not name him brother, the son of the man who put your true brothers to the sword. Or have you forgotten Roderick and Marin, who are your own blood? Theon says he forgets nothing, noting, in a set of course, that Red Stark hadn't actually killed either of his brothers, but he probably would have given the opportunity. He also remembers that his brothers were idiot pirates who sucked, but he also remembers when Balin was a king. He tosses the letter to Balin and asks him to read it. Your grace. Balin reads the letter and then starts being super awesome to Theon. Good job, Theon. Well done, my good and beloved son. I'm super proud of you. I was so sorry for all the terrible things I just said to you. No, no, he doesn't say that. No, doesn't say that at all. Instead, he insults Theon again, saying that Rob's offer is shitty. Theon counters that Rob is moving against the Lannisters in the west and will destroy the Lannister army in the field. If they join together, they can crush the Lannisters and take Casterly Rock. But Balon knows that Casterly Rock has never fallen. Until now, Theon smiles. His father did not return the smile. So this is why Rob Stark sends you back to me after so long. So you might win my consent to his plan of his... Well, it isn't Rob's plan. It's Theon's. Haven't you been listening, Dad? Theon is going to lead the attack. Then as a reward, he wants uh, Casterly Rock. You reward yourself handsomely for a notion and a few lines of scribbling. Besides, the letter says nothing about Theon's reward. Balin is just supposed to listen and that Theon will speak for Rob. All Balin has to do is give Rob his sword and sails, and Rob will give him a crown. Give him a crown? Uh, a poor choice of words. What, what has been is... What is meant is what is said. The boy will give me a crown. And what is given can be taken away. Balin tosses the letter to the fire to Theon's horror. He demands to know if his father has gone bad, and Balin, good father again, backhands Theon across the face. He's not going to be given a crown. He's going to take one. Old way style. Theon backs away from Balin, but then finds his courage, telling him that he's a fucking moron and that they'll come hunting for him after the war is done. Lord Balin laughs at him and says that he's not a fool. Fact check, false. He's gotten all the swords and sails right there and then right now. He's going to get a kingdom for himself with a fire and sword, but he's not going to carve it out of the cunning Lord Tywin Lannister's lands. Oh no, he wants a different plum. One that's not so sweet, but is utterly undefended. Where? Theon might have asked. 
but by then he knew and that is a clash of kings theon one am i wrong in thinking that this chapter is a microcosm for theon's entire story in a song of ice and fire is is that a wrong notion i agreed completely it's wild to think that this is the best it's gonna get for theon Greyjoy at least within the space of the published novels. He may be humiliated and frustrated in his goals by the end of this chapter, but at least he's yet to murder children or be taken captive by a merciless sadist who castrates him and forces him, forces him into a disassociative crisis. I mean, this chapter is a lark compared to his later ones <laughs> in The Clash of Kings, and those are sunshiny unicorn daydreams compared to his chapters in A Dance with Dragons, which is where George goes full horror in an unforgettable fashion. But it's all great. It's all some of my favorite material in the series, and it really does all fit together. That which Theon is aspiring for so obnoxiously and presumptuously in this chapter is that which will be taken away from him and with which he will be beaten over the course of his story. The Theon swaggering into POV status at the start of this chapter is the same man who will call himself Reek. That's what enables the creation of Reek in the first place, that Ramsay sees Reek hiding inside Theon and pulls him out. But what he does in that inside-out process is create a Theon waiting to be born inside Reek. And that's what allows Reek to struggle his way back towards Theon. And we're, of course, we're only seeing the seeds of Theon's fall and rise being sown here in this chapter, but the execution of it going forward is so strong and so consistent that it reverberates backward to make this starting point even better than it is on its own merit, which is already very good. I started off our analysis of A Clash of Kings by calling Stannis the best-written character in this series, and I'm going to follow that up by saying that Theon has the best-written POV character arc in the series. That is a bold statement, man, but I, I agree insofar as we're a book shy of Jamie's The Storm of Swords chapters. When we get there, we'll, we'll have another <laughs> discussion. But, you know, what you're really saying, I think, is that you really wanted a Viserys Targaryen point of view, right, for for Theon? Is, is Clearly, that that's what I'm saying. 100%. Of, of course, of course. I, I'm, I'm kidding. But, but seriously, like, in, in rereading this chapter, this is a, a, a thought that came very late and kind of... You know, we read the reread these chapters many, many times before I actually come into the podcast itself. But I was rereading this chapter, I'm like, hey, wait a minute, this is like... I'm getting some Viserys Targaryen vibes, and I started like kind of unpacking a little bit of my mind to go through some of other some of Theon's other chapters in Clash. I, it came to my mind that the the seed for a Theon point of view as a, for Theon as a point of view may have been how he characterized Viserys Targaryen in Game of Thrones. And we both got young men dreaming of home with fantasies of how great it will be when they get back. We got Theon and Viserys have both been far from home for a long time. Ten years for Theon at the start of a Clash of Kings. Fifteen years when Viserys receives his crown in the Game of Thrones. The two men have a severe case of entitlement on what they deserve. Then we've got two guys with shitty views on sexuality, with Theon taking advantage of the captain's daughter and Viserys trying out Doria the night before Danny's wedding night. Then there's the whole sexual dynamic dynamic between the young men and their sisters, Viserys twisting Danny's nipple violently and wanting to take Danny's virginity per Illyrio from A Dance with Dragons, versus Asha tricking Theon into fingering her and feeling her up, and, and how we even have the same father figure, the Mad King, Ares being known die that title far and wide and Theon is going to call Balon mad at the end of this chapter and as much as you know Song of Ice and Fire may not be the most sensitive treatment of mental illness I, I do think that there is something at work with these the, the mental states of these different characters and, and then finally we have the end point of this their stories readers kind of pity these guys who have been so dominant and strong at the start of their stories and yet Viserys is humbled throughout a Game of Thrones and he dies piteously in Danny's fifth chapter in a Game of Thrones while Theon gets his ass humbled by Aaron, then Balon and ends up a figure of immense pity even sympathy as Reek in A Dance of Dragons before reclaiming his name and Asha's final A Dance with Dragons chapter I mean, I, I don't think I really want a Viserys point of view in the same way I would never want a Joffrey or Ramsay or Gregor point of view, but 
God, Theon is a super point of view character. And I do think that maybe the seed for him becoming that was this other character that George had in mind, that George already had established in Viserys Targaryen running a Game of Thrones. Theon's point of view, his observations and memories, they serve as a really fun, fun, good, good. They serve as an excellent entry point to the Iron Islands. And George is going to revisit this place in greater and more glorious detail in A Feast of Crows. But for now, like the world building is going to serve as excellent, albeit dreary window dressing for the plot points of this chapter and for Theon's overall story and clash on into A Dance of Dragons and of course, into the Winds of Winters at some point, too. As you say, you wouldn't want a Viserys POV. So why is Theon a POV? I think that's a good place to start. Both of our new POVs in this book, Davos and Theon, got their wings as solutions to narrative problems created by the story growing in the telling. Davos, as we covered with Frank the last couple weeks, existed as a camera on Stannis before evolving over the course of A Storm of Swords and A Dance with Dragons into a more distinct character in his own right. Theon gets his own story because Tyrion, instead of burning Winterfell as in the pitch letter, is now going to be stationed at King's Landing for the next two books before going east. Yet Theon and Davos' chapters in The Clash of Kings have inverted strengths and flaws. The highlight of Davos's chapters are the events themselves, with his own presence, thoughts and feelings, etc. playing a secondary role. We covered that in Davos 1 and will again in Davos 2. In Theon's chapters, those plot mechanics are much more dubious, probably because, again, this is a Lannister storyline being hastily retrofitted for the Ironborn. Like Big Daddy Balin does nothing after his initial invasion. He sends Victorian to hold Mo Kalen Ash to the Mont and then sits on his ass before six months before Euron puts him out of his and our misery. That's <laughs> that's that's that just kinda makes you tilt your head. Like and also Theon's preposterous plan to take Winterfell goes off without a hitch, because Sir Roderick is uncharacteristically stupid. And then when Ramsay attacks Sir Roderick's army, no one seems to get word about that until A Dance with Dragons, despite the fact that we know from A Dance with Dragons and also just common sense that there would be some survivors. Like, most of that army was from Castle Kerwin. Would they not run the half a day's ride back to Castle Kerwin, tell a maester, hey, don't believe what you hear, it wasn't Theon turned cloak who turned on us, it was Ramsay, the bastard of Bolton, and then he would send a raven to Riverrun to warn Rob, but we can't have that or the story doesn't happen. And of course, that's how a lot of writing works, but in, in Theon's Clash of Kings storyline, there are some plot beats that are a little too nakedly exposed as being contrivances to get Theon to the place he needs to be. But I think that is more than made up for by the razor-sharp character work. Theon Greyjoy as a distinct person to be put through a distinct ringer clearly exists whole in George's mind, a book prior to Davos ascending similarly in A Storm of Swords. And as you can see in your synopsis, you see that right away. This is one of those occasions like Quentin's adventure stank in his first chapter, or Cersei's dream of sitting naked on the Iron Throne in her first POV chapter in Feast, where George lets you know what's up with a POV character from the very first words of their very first chapter. There was no safe anchorage at Pike, but Theon Greyjoy wished to look on his father's castle from the sea, to see it as he had seen it last, ten years before, when Robert Baratheon's war galley had borne him away to be a ward of Eddard Stark. On that day, he had stood beside the rail, listening to the stroke of the oars and the pounding of the master's drum while he watched Pike dwindle in the distance. Now he wanted to see it grow larger, to rise from the sea before him. Obedient to his wishes, the Miriam beat her way past the point, with her, snails, with her sails snapping and her captain cursing the wind and his crew and the follies of highborn lordlings. Theon drew the hood of his cloak up against the spray and looked for home. Hmm. Theon's cardinal sin is pride manifesting in this chapter mostly as vanity and snobbishness before taking much more lethal form later on in the North. He had to have heads, or they'd all have laughed at him, and then he would truly be nothing. 
pride goeth before destruction, and a haughty spirit before a fall, is more or less Theon's arc in A Clash of Kings. As we've said before, and we'll discuss at length next week with, da- with Daenerys One, George is gradually incorporating more religious themes and imagery into A Song of Ice and Fire, as the story focuses more time on prophecy and magic. You see that explicitly in this chapter with Damphair interpreting the Red Comet as the drowned god holding aloft a burning brand as he leads the Ironborn <laughs> forth to conquest. But even in the subtext, like Theon is a prodigal son in this chapter, and Ramsay later on is a devil figure who's tempting him and then showing up at the end in his over-the-top over satanic armor to whisk him away to the bowels of the Dreadfort, a.k.a. Hell. Like, that structure is there. But I think what gives it psychological depth, what makes it more than just, like, checking, checking a, a list of tropes is that this prodigal son is rejected by his father and unwelcome in the cradle of his birth. Again, that perfect opening sentence, there was no safe anchorage at Pike, which has more than one meaning. In a book about a civil war, the shadows on the wall demanding you clap if you believe, Theon has no home, no clear loyalty, and hence no true identity. He has to create one, and all his efforts on the Clash of Kings backfire in spectacular fashion (laughs) on himself and others. Both his obnoxious attitude in this chapter and the hideous violence he commits later on in the book are attempts to forge that identity using other people's pain as a springboard, as raw material. And that marks Theon out as George's first villain protagonist on A Song of Ice and Fire, the first POV from which we are meant to flinch. But George also wants to emphasize that Theon has no good options, that he's he's more like a panicked rat in a cage than he is an overt predator in the wild like Ramsay or Euron for that matter. And Theon has no good options because that's not really his home he's staring at. Pike stopped being home the day it dwindled in the distance, and he knows it. That's why he wants to inflate it before him, to make it big again, as if he's like reversing the film of his own life and erasing everything that makes this painful. But what's his first line of dialogue as a POV when the captain's daughter asks him how he likes Pike upon his return? It's to confess that it isn't working. It looks smaller. (laughs) And that's the core of Theon's frustrated ambitions in A Clash of Kings. He thinks he can bluff his way through everything, but he can't erase the past nor transform the present. He's ultimately powerless. And it's the downfall of someone who's trying to be the hero of their own story, realizing they're a secondary character at best, which is something George comes back to over and over again in A Song of Ice and Fire. See Viserys, as you were saying. See Stannis. See Quentin. What will these younger brothers do when their pride shatters? Burn. (laughs) We've been talking about the opening words of Theon's storyline in Clash, but look at the words with which it ends. The last thing Theon Greyjoy saw was Smiler, kicking free of the burning stables with his mane ablaze, screaming, rearing. Theon will do anything to get home, but it is not enough. It has never been enough. And in the process, he burns down whatever chance he had to find one. George makes you feel for that hole inside Theon, and then shudder at how he tries to fill it, and then shudder even harder at the fallout. It's just perfect writing completely concur with that. I think Theon's story is incredible writing because it's so focused on the identity aspect from the opening words of this chapter of Theon not, of course, of symbolizing that Theon doesn't have any safe anchorage at at Pike to all of his interactions on board the ship itself where he's trying to piece together the backstory of the Iron Islands and it's clear that He's kind of bluffing a lot of this stuff. It's it's clear that he's he doesn't really know a lot. And, and I think the other thing that's really fascinating about the end is we're going to explore more in this chapter is how he doesn't contextualize this information that he has. Like he's got a maester's learning about the Iron Islands. He probably received from Maester Lewin, right? Of all of the history of, of the Iron Islands, of all of the the pat their past quote glories in the old way and the different things that are making the Ironborn a distinct culture in Westeros. But all of that is not an experienced 
lifestyle in Theon. It's all learned stuff. It's basically me reading a book about Roman history and then coming away thinking that I'm a Roman too. Like, it, like that's kind of like, it, it's, I mean, it's kind of silly, but not that silly if you consider some that, that That is what a lot of people do online. Like I know, I just with, thought of that. <laughs> with the sculptures in their Twitter AV, that's, that's what those people do. And I, th- I think you, you hit on exactly what's going on. It's all lore. It's no meaning. It's no connection to Theon's life. It's just bullet points that he's listing. And those bullet points that he's listing are just, I mean, they're, they're so violent and they're so kind of wretched when you like kind of peel yourself away from it. Like if you can experience, as we're going to talk about more about the, the backstory about the Ironborn, like all of the brutalities that they inflict on people and all of their old way is all sourced to slavery and rape and murder. Like this is, this is something that like, this is something that I, I, I feel strongly that Theon is kind of like, really is like, oh man, this is so awesome. Like, but when you get right down to it, the Ironborn as a culture have inflicted a lot of suffering on people, and Theon is not seeing that. Now, the thing about the, which is so interesting about this chapter and about Theon's story in Clash is that, you know, he's idealizing this culture that rejects him. Like, this culture, like, out and out rejects the shit out of Theon. The only person who's, like, nice to Theon in all of his chapters who's an Ironborn guy is, uh, is Dagmar Clefjaw. And which is, he's an interesting little character. We'll get to him later in, in Theon's third chapter in Clash of Kings. But everyone else is there, like, thinking that Theon is just the worst possible person in the world for the crime of getting captured as a 10-year-old and taken away. It's that hole inside that he's, he desperately tries to fill throughout the book. And then Ramsay fills that hole up with Reek right at the end. But long mm-hmm. before we get to any of that, our first taste of how Theon's arc is going to go comes in the microcosm of his time on the Miriam, on the boat that is ushering him to the Iron Islands. And Theon at this point, of course, has yet to cross the war crime boundaries that we've already seen Tywin and Caldrogo and their respective cronies just blow past without a thought. But he is already the worst in this chapter. <laughs> like every move, every word, every thought, because he's a POV, is one of entitlement. He's not content with bribing his way into the captain's cabin, so he has to then shack up with his daughter. And it's just, it's so chilling how Theon casually says that she came to his bed willingly enough Hmm. willingly enough Hmm. willingly enough that theon can feel okay with it that he can still feel like he's a good guy that he's different from someone like you know gregor clegane or the other men in his family willingly enough there's an entire world of misery behind that choice of words and so the seed is planted here is the man who in that third chapter you mentioned with dagmar will indifferently inflict mass rape on a village and then later on himself leave kyra bruised and sobbing in ned stark's bed at winterfell It's sexual violence specifically being linked to dehumanization, which is being brought forward by the POV structure, that we're not just seeing Theon's actions, we're seeing his thoughts. And in his thoughts, Theon is just repeatedly insulting the captain's daughter at every level. It's it's just it's just horrible to read. He doesn't even know the girl's name. It's not brought up in any in either this chapter or the next Theon chapter, which is the the second time we're gonna meet up with her. It's a dehumanized, like he views her as a dehumanized extension of her father, and she's only there to service him sexually. And that's, it really speaks to that kind of wretchedness in, in Theon, that sense of entitlement that people are things, but people are just means to an end. And in Theon's case, that means to an end is getting his dick wet often and, and always. It's that class structure that we do see with other families, because of course, no one escapes the society they're raised in, even good people. But you know, the way Theon actively thinks with just contempt for everyone, like he thinks yeah. of not only the captain's daughter, but also the thralls he and, peasant, and thralls and peasants he encounters on the islands as, quote, bovine, as, yeah, not being human compared to the clever, dashing Theon Greyjoy, <laughs> heir to Pike, soon to be crowned. Like, none of the Starks ever break this bad. 
So this is the Greyjoy in him coming out. And what binds all the Greyjoy men together, what binds a swaggering brute like Theon, a political reactionary like Balon, and an outright apocalyptic madman like Euron, is bottomless ego that must be fed with blood. That's what they have in common. And the blood in this case is that of the captain's daughter, actively pleading for his help. Take me with you, my lord. I don't need to go to your castle. I can stay in some town and be your salt wife. And she reached out to stroke his cheek. Basic human connection, basic decency. Theon Greyjoy pushed her hand aside and climbed off the bunk. My place is on Pike, and yours is on this ship. I can't stay here. Why not? My father. Once you're gone, he'll punish me, my lord. He'll call me names and hit me. Theon swept his cloak off its peg and over his shoulders. Fathers are like that, he admitted as he pinned the folds with a silver clasp. Tell him he should be pleased. As many times as I've fucked you, you're likely with child. It's not every man who has the honor of raising a king's bastard. It's just devastating how George frames and structures this wretched scene. Theon can only think that, quote, the stupid girl did not seem to be listening when he prattles on about ironborn worldbuilding. Because he doesn't dignify her enough to pay attention to what she is talking about. Leaving the ship. Coming with him. That's what she's talking about throughout that scene. And that's not first and foremost because she, quote, loves him well. Although she might, the poor kid. This was her first time. And Theon is quite the smooth talker. She might well have developed swoony romantic feelings for him. But first and foremost, the reason she is asking this is because her father will abuse her if Theon leaves her there. And he does not care. All he offers on the way out is more self-aggrandizement. More like, I'm so awesome, you should consider this a gift. There are no good options for this young woman who has had barely say in any of this. And like Gilly with Sam in the Storm of Swords, she can only beg to be a man's property. And Gilly was just lucky enough that Sam happens to be a decent guy who felt really terrible about leaving her there in Clash of Kings in the first place, which I think is supposed to be a direct contrast with how little Theon cares about leaving this woman here in this situation. Her time with Theon has tainted her in her father's eyes, and there's an interesting parallel in that Theon's time with the Starks has tainted him in his father's eyes, as we're going to see at chapter's end. But even after that, even after his humiliation in this chapter, Theon has no empathy to offer when he spots her again in his next chapter, because he's too focused on hitting on quote-unquote Eskred, quoting on the woman (laughs) who it turns out to be Asha. And it just uses the captain's daughter to make himself look cooler in her eyes. Theon uses sexual control, humiliation, and violence to make himself feel not only more manly, but more specifically like an ironborn man. Like a returning, conquering hero who belongs here. But his conduct here is both vile and juvenile, completely undercutting his self-image. You know, I think talking about the structure of Clash of Kings, it definitely says something that... In between Davos 1 and Daenerys 1, which are two chapters just overflowing with psychedelic messianic imagery, we get this very unsparing, wretched, like flat medium shot of Theon telling himself he's the protagonist of reality while getting his dick sucked. Like, this is what the Chosen One really looks like without any of the trappings of power, without the dragons or shadow binders or even you know, decency to back up that narrative. You look like an abusive, delusional clown. Like, I think even for first-time readers, you can already kind of tell that the image Theon is trying to create is going to fail. Like, yeah, he almost gets the ship sunk, just trying to reverse-engineer his image of Pike, and it doesn't even work. He can't even see the banner that he's rhapsodizing on about as the most stirring sight he's ever seen. That's how you know it's just an image. And I think the most telling example is that he notes that uh, how this this shameless lickspittle from Old Town, all he needed was a bag of gold and his fancy title to intimidate him, and that doesn't work on the Ironborn. 
without realizing he's just admitted to himself why his plan isn't going to work, <laughs> that they're not going to be intimidated by him. They're not going to be impressed. So he, he actually belongs more in the Greenland world where you can bribe and intimidate people. That's the world that makes sense to Theon now, not the Iron Islands. And I think you're talking about this chapter as kind of as kind of being fun in a, in, a, in a cringy kind of way. And the pleasure of this chapter is watching these holes in Theon's narrative add up until it sinks, stranding him on the bottom of the pile among the Greyjoys as he was among the Starks. And the same goes for his comeuppance via Asha in his next chapter. And a more kind of sobering note, though, I think it is important in this book about power that George starts by showing us what Theon does with the power he does have, what he does to the people he can leverage authority over. And it is uniformly awful in this little microcosm of his time with the captain's daughter. Given that, you know, we talk about the crimes of Theon Greyjoy mostly focus on the child murder and for good reason. But I come back to this because I think it's no axiom that his spark of redemption or rehabilitation or just change, we'll just call it change in A Dance with Dragons, <laughs> takes the form of compassion for a young woman repeatedly subjected to rape. Do you think that George might be kind of calling back to this earlier moment when that happens? Certainly. I think that George does a really good job of bringing Theon's story full circle and having Theon rescue a rape woman after being a sexual aggressor in starting in a clash of kings and really kind of proceeding onto a clash of kings with, with characters like kyra as we see in, in later theon chapters from clash to kind of like take it out take the ten thousand foot view of of this minor not minor story like it's minor story comparatively i think like the the story of theon his swaggering masculinity it works as kind of a microcosm to the overarching narrative of the ironborn in the song of ice and fire they're always seeming to overcompensate for their multiple weaknesses with 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 narrative, with stories, you know, the former hostage and prodigal son returns, dreaming of resuming his post as heir to Balon and future lord of Castle Rock. The Ironborn, at least in Theon's mind, yearn to resume their yearn to resume their reaving ways and resume their long dead glory. The problem is that their plan to resume their long dead glory is really shoddy as fuck, and as we'll talk about here momentarily. And I think like we're really supposed to look at these that this character at this culture at this character of Theon in this culture is kind of pathetic, overcompensating for the weaknesses, overcompensating for their their failures in the past. I think it's really good that we don't open this chapter starting with Theon walking ashore onto Pike, walking to Lordsport. Instead we start the Miraham and we have Theon kind of exposing himself literally and figuratively before he's actually exposed literally and figuratively when he gets onto Pike itself before we're actually introduced to the Iron Islands proper. I think you nailed the connection between Theon and the Ironborn as a whole. Maybe he's out of place here, but the one thing he has in common with the people around him is their expertise at feeding themselves bullshit and believing mm. their own narratives. They're different narratives, which is why Theon doesn't fit in, but that's what they have in common. And yeah, talking about world building, Theon 1 is our introduction to the Iron Islands. As with our introduction to the Vale in Book 1, George goes heavy on history and lore because this is not a central location of A Song of Ice and Fire. This is not King's Landing or Castle Black or Winterfell, but it is significant, and a lot of significant characters are tied to it, so George wants to establish it in our minds. Coming in from book one, we know that the Ironborn rebelled against Robert and lost, and that's about it. <laughs> this chapter has to ground us, politically and culturally, and even before they make landfall, this process begins on the Miraham, with Theon telling the captain's daughter about how the Ironborn rolled in their glory days. Once I might have carried you home as a prize, and kept you to wife whether you willed it or no. The Iron Men of old did such things. A man had his rock wife, his true bride, Ironborn like himself, but he had his salt wives too, women captured on raids. And he thinks to himself, once I would have kept her as a salt wife in truth, when we still kept the old way, lived by the axe instead of the pick, taking what we would, be it wealth, women, or glory. 
In those days, the ironborn did not work mines. That was labor for the captives brought back from the hostings, and so too the sorry business of farming and tending goats and sheep. War was an iron man's proper trade. The drowned god had made them to reeve and rape, to carve out kingdoms and write their names in fire and blood and song. This is really revealing in a number of ways. First of all, it, it does ground Theon's awful behavior towards women in a larger pattern. He has his own little misogynistic quirks he brings to the table. But when he's trying to live up to the Ironborn image in this regard, he is unfortunately accurate about how the Ironborn tend to <laughs> treat women in general, especially women from the mainland. At a larger level, as with Rob's crowning and later on the Dornish plot surrounding Marcella, we are seeing older nationalisms cropping back up as the war splits Westeros apart. But George is... is He's zooming in on not just the, the presentation of that nationalism, but what's behind it, what's driving that ideology, the benefits that are accrued by it. He is demonstrating that the old red tales, as Theon calls them, don't exist in a vacuum. They are part of this grand story the Ironborn tell themselves about how they're too good to work for a living. That's the constant theme here. Like, it's so revealing that the Greyjoy's words are, we do not sow, as in we do not farm. That's their <laughs> ideology. That's the number one important thing to them, is that they do not do that. And living by the axe instead of the pick, that's the core of it. And although those, those songs and stories are essential to how they convince themselves that that's how the world works. And I think it's really good that Theon is the point of view here. It's perfect, really. I mean, he's a member of a defeated people. He focuses on the past glories and how shitty everything is because to him, a not really Ironborn character, he it gives him a sense of purpose, identity, and separation from his captors and hosts. And I, I think it's, it's fascinating that George tends to, that George is having Theon be the person to explain the history, to explain the worldview of the Ironborn. And yes, we'll get more, much more of that in Aaron, Asha, and Victorian's chapters in A Feast for Crows and On Into a Dance with Dragons. But what we're seeing with Theon is this guy who's separated out from this, this culture, who's, again, like we talked about before, totally fixated on the lore and not really focused on like what the, the lore is actually demonstrating in the character of the ironborn but the the lore is, is showing is a as a people that have essentially failed this is this is a failed state for to use a modern political term uh, we do not sow as a political maxim is just stupid it's 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 completely foolish and stupid and yes i do understand that there are limitations on how much farming can be done on windswept rocks out on the sea at the same time though well it's still being done they just want to force other people to do it Right. As, in the, as in the real world, racial hierarchies exist to support material hierarchies. Mainland Westeros, unlike in the show, isn't actually particularly xenophobic by the standard of medieval fantasy societies. And while class <laughs> distinctions are certainly wide and powerful there, the Iron Islands really do have this peculiar institution to themselves. They built their religion and their politics and their understanding of their own history around the idea that they are a superior race, this ideology called the Old Way. Only captives are supposed to farm and mine, while every captain considers themselves a king, because that's how free men distinguish themselves in the slave society. That's the little spark of power they each get to separate themselves from the underclass. And honestly, this is probably why Asha has been accepted as Balin's heir. She certainly faces misogyny, but this racial caste system creates strong in-group ties. She may be a woman, but she's an iron-born woman. She's rock wife over salt wife. And so that's why she's allowed to muster a military record, making her a credible leader. So she has better luck pressing her claim to power than, say, Cersei ever will. <laughs> but I really think that shouldn't be understood as the equivalent of, like, Dornish progressivism on the subject of gender, which really does seem to be about acknowledging women as complete equal human beings. <laughs> like, in the Iron Islands case, what this is, is, is it's, it's an interpretation of the in-group as butchers and everyone else as meat. Asha is just lucky enough to be in the, the former category. Any other women in the latter category, as we see with Theon elsewhere, is screwed. 
Right. And I mean, consider the example of, of Theon's mom, who is a traditional ironborn woman who's separated out, has zero ability to, to access power. Asha is going to spend the next chapter, at least the second half of the chapter, really, in my opinion, overcompensating for womanhood with demonstrations of masculinity and, and talking about her her wife and her suckling babe as the dirk and the axe and talking about her skill at the finger game. Like in order for Asha to rise high in Ironborn society, she had to shed all of the pos- all the parts of her womanhood. That's really not the case with Ariane Martell, as we see in A Feast for Crows, who is going to very much exude a lot of womanhood in order to gain power, which I think, I mean, obviously, this this goes without saying, Dornish culture greater than sign, Ironborn culture in terms of its treatment of gender roles. At the same time, though, I do think it's an interesting parallel we are going to see in Feast between Ariane and Asha as they attempt to press their claims for power, and they are somewhat hindered by the fact that they are women and in their in their quest for power. If you look not even at Asha's mom, but her aunt Gwyneth, who believes she should be the rightful heir to House Harlock because she's older than Roderick, but you know, that doesn't matter because of the gender roles that they're existing within. And as Theon says, it is for this worldview that his father rose up against Robert more than anything else to bring back the old way. The old way, however, is utter flaming horseshit, (laughs) standing out even in the context of a series full of ideologies exposed as utter flaming horseshit, putting aside the immorality of it all for a second. It's a delusional fantasy disconnected from their actual history and the lived lives of the people. As Theon admits, Egan the Conqueror reduced the old way to ash, basically without breaking a sweat. And now they are forced to farm and fish and mine for themselves, perish the thought. But even before that, it's crucial to remember that Heron the Black beggared the largest kingdom the Ironborn people had ever known just to build his cursed white elephant of a castle, and that was dumb and ruinous even before the dragons showed up. That there perfectly represents how all Ironborn ambitions sour and collapse in on themselves. Theon and Balon and Euron should be taking notes, but the point is that they're not. They never learn. After the conquest, every attempt made by Ironborn reactionaries to resurrect the old way has failed. Because no no matter how weak the central government may be at any given time, it's always eventually strong enough to kick Ironborn ass if it feels like it. Because the, the material realities of the situation, the islands are thinly peopled and largely devoid of resources. So the Reavers just go around ra- raping and robbing and kidnapping helpless peasants to do the actual work and then sit around telling each other how badass they are and <laughs> Theon is just falling into this same pattern. Right. And I mean, historically, like conquest economies are bound to fail unless they evolve into more settled economies to focus on agriculture, farming and mining, all the things that are born hate. And if they don't evolve, they tend to stagnate. And I do kind of wonder maybe that George is reaching back to a parallel to the Roman Empire, which had a very which was very much based on a conquest economy, but then had to sort of evolve over time. But is all but one of the reasons why why Rome fell, which is a major and will always be a discussion or a topic of debate among many historians and people who are not historians is the possibility is the possibility that their the conquest economy just didn't last in the long term that it couldn't it wasn't sustainable and the fact that it wasn't sustainable led to economic stagnation in the same way that the iron islands seem very economically stagnant because they they have not evolved they've they've continue to focus on their old way and the old way has led them to ruin has led these islands to actually be shitty pieces of shit. I mean, these places are terrible for the people who are living there, not just the thralls, not just the peasants, but for everyone. Like, this is a terrible place to be at, to live in. And I think that's, George is calling attention to the fact that this ideology sucks by demonstrating the, the hard lives these people are living because they don't have to live that hard of lives. They, But they do because of, their, because of the ideology of the old way. 
And it's not the only ideology. That's the fascinating thing that George is doing under the surface of this chapter, is showing that other elements of Ironborn society beyond the, the hardcore reactionary caste are clearly moving on. Like, why else are those ships from Tyrosh and Ib in the harbor of Lordsport? Who were they there for if, if no one's paying the gold price and everyone's paying the iron price? Someone is trading with those ships. You have Roderick the Reader moving on. You have people who back Asha at the King's Moon moving on. And if you look at the world of Ice and Fire, if you look back through Ironborn history, you find that there has always been a new way, struggling alongside the old way, back and forth in power. Hell, you don't even have to go back that far. Go back one generation. <laughs> Just look at Balin's father, Quellon. He was a reformer. I love that guy. Yeah, Quellen's great. I wish I wish he was still around. That would have been awesome, but it would have made for a worse story. So I guess I'm not glad he's around. But I do love the imagery that, that when Theon when he first enters into Lordsport, we have he sees a set that's been left in ruins at the port, and and I kind of wonder whether this was built when Quellen Greyjoy was the Lord of the Iron Islands, possibly for his third wife, who was a piper, which is interesting, right? That we have Quellen Greyjoy who's, who's marrying outside of the Iron Island caste system. You know, the Ironborn have not rebuilt the Sept after its destruction during the Great Joy Rebellion, and maybe this demonstrates that revancanism, that possibly the elite class, possibly the overall add-up to the Ironborn in the wake of their defeat at the end of the Great Joy Rebellion. Like, they're not going to rebuild this, the Sept that, that, was, that was representative of the people that came in and stopped the old way. But at the same time, you make a great point that the Ironborn still are... There is a new way that's in existence there. We do have something of a trade economy that's being established. And that kind of conflict between the old and the new way is something that's going to be pushing forward, not just in Clash of Kings, but on into the King's Moon of Feast for Crows. And I want to say it's going to be important for the end game for the Ironborn come maybe a dream of spring when Theon or and or Ash return to the Iron Islands again. It's absolutely crucial to the King's Moon. It creates the opening for Euron at the King's Moon because the Ironborn are caught between the old way and the new way and can't really put their foot down in either camp right now. So they know enough that the Balin model didn't work that when Victarion says he's just going to give them everything Balin gave them at the Kingsmoon, he knows they know what that means is more defeat and decay and death. But they still hate the mainland and still consider themselves superior, all the more so after Robert came down on them with his fury, so they can't really get on board with Asha's plan either. And that's what allows Euron to thread the needle. And I think you, you can see George diagnosing the politics of the Iron Islands and opening up this space for Euron. The, the present-day Old Way advocates are engaged in intense historical revisionism here, like when Balin declares continuity with Euron Redhand, as though the last 5,000 years didn't happen, as though they have anything in common politically at this point. I mean, the reason the Greyjoys are in charge of the Iron Islands at all, as will be said at the Kingsmoon, is because the Targaryens put them in charge, as lords, as overseers in this, in this new kingdom. But now the Greyjoys are claiming primacy over this independent kingdom, they're lying to themselves. It's a blind they're pulling over their eyes. And as we've said, Theon is doing the same thing. He's telling himself that he and he alone can resurrect this dream, and that's tied to his identity issues. He smiled crookedly, wondering what his father would say when Theon told him that he, the lastborn, babe and hostage, he had succeeded, where Lord Balin himself had failed. And that, of course, is when he comes, because that's just how Theon rolls. <laughs> <laughs> and the, the problem is that he doesn't understand that dream, nor his people, nearly as well as he thinks he does. He's been away too long, and everyone else knows it but him. Right. And I think also Theon, Theon fails to understand that even in the best circumstance where Balin takes up Rob's offer, it's not as though the king of the north and rivers would allow the Ironborn to resume reaving in territory that Rob would control. Like the old way, 
would die under this new paradigm that Theon is going to be advocating in the form of the letter they brings to Balan at the end of this chapter. Theon is not really coming to grips with the idea that the old way is, is dead if Balan accepts his letter, even though he's being like, yes, we will bring it back. We were meant for reaving and raping and killing. That's what we were all made for. Um, but it's not going to work out so well if Rob is still the king of the north and the rivers, man. Like It's, it's really, it, you're, you're bound to fail one way or the other. Exactly right. That's that contradiction tearing Theon apart throughout this book that he, these, these dreams are irreconcilable and he's not failing just because his families are full of assholes, although they are, but because it, it's impossible to square this circle. And, you know, when Theon turns up at Lordsport, he can, you can already tell that he's not going to be able to find a, a new place here. No one knows who he is. The captain of the Miriam announces his arrival like he's just another trade good, much like in chapter two of Fever Dream. <laughs> And Theon gets pissed because he wants their adulation. He wants their respect. He wants this to be a, the homecoming he dreamt of. But they turn instead. They bend the knee instead, quite literally, to the second Greyjoy we meet in the story, one who is much more at home here. And that, of course, is Aaron Greyjoy. The innkeeper introduces him with a devout murmur as damp hair, tall and thin with fierce black eyes and a beak of a nose. The priest was garbed in mottled robes of green and gray and blue, the swirling colors of the drowned god. A water skin hung under his arm on a leather strap, and ropes of dried seaweed were braided through his waist-long black hair and untrimmed beard. And of course, we see Aaron a little earlier than this when Theon introduces him as just one, a priest wandering along the shoreline, one of many unrecognizable figures in Lordsport. And the great irony there is that Theon did not recognize his uncle Aaron at first any more than the townsfolk recognized him, because both Theon and Aaron have just changed so much. The difference is that Aaron has shifted from one culturally approved role, that of the Reaver, to another culturally approved role, that of the Priest. Theon, as his uncle says, is seen as having becoming a Stark instead. It's, it's a transformation he's gone through that makes him unacceptable to the Iron Islands. And later on in the series, we're going to see a parallel between these two characters. George parallels Theon's suffering and transformation at Ramsay's hands with Aaron's suffering and transformation at Euron's hands. But at this point, I don't get the sense that he already had the Euron-Aaron backstory in mind in A Clash of Kings. In, in this book, I think Aaron's transformation from the man Theon remembers as being f feckless and amiable, loving songs and ailing woman to this somber priest, what that reflects is Theon's fall from grace in terms of his perception of the Iron Islands and his own place within them. He had this image in mind that was like the Aaron he remembered, all just songs and the great life of getting going out and taking what you want, and the reality is much more like the the grim, sober, stoic man Aaron is now. When Theon imagined coming home in his splendid clothes, it didn't involve kneeling in mud and shit. But that's exactly the attitude that his elders don't like about him. His childish memories are giving way to the grim, cruel realities of post-rebellion adult life on the Iron Islands. Just look at how Dampere replies when Theon asks innocuously how things are. Men fish the sea, dig in the earth, and die. Women birth children in blood and pain and die. Night follows day. The winds and tides remain. The islands are as our god made them. <laughs> Calm down, man. <laughs> in part, now, though, of course, that is, again, the revanche search for continuity, that Aaron is trying to justify atrocities in the name of a narrow-minded dogma that says the world has always worked this way. We don't have to question what we're doing or our statements about how we're better than everyone because this is how the world has always worked, and that's not actually true, but if I say that enough times, it justifies how we're treating ourselves and the world. But it's also Aaron's way of telling Theon that even asking the question of how things are here marks him as a hopeless outsider, especially compared to him, Aaron, the ultimate insider. Like his big brothers Balin and Victarion, but not Euron, Aaron stands in for the conventional wisdom of the old way, and the old guard makes very clear throughout this chapter that they find Theon lacking. 
It is Aaron who directly challenges the core of Theon's master plan, even before Balon. The political and military specifics will wait for Big Daddy, but Nuncle Dampere gets at the underlying cultural disconnect, which will dog Theon throughout the book. I think you can argue like the, the heart of this chapter, the core of it in terms of how it motivates Theon going forward, is this. I will not be cheated of my rights, I warn you. His uncle grunted. You warned a servant of the drowned god, boy? You have forgotten more than you know. And you are a great fool if you believe your lord father will ever hand these holy islands over to a Stark. That's what they think of him as, a Stark. And this is where Theon really starts to realize the extent of the damage done by his absence. He no longer has a place here, and he will do anything in the rest of this book to prove that he deserves one. The other way, of course, in which Aaron destabilizes Theon's narrative is by bringing up Asha as Balin's potential heir ahead of Theon. And as we'll see, Asha is the one who knows how to completely pry Theon apart, even more than his father or his uncle. And of course, Theon didn't even stop to consider Asha as a potential heir, because he is focused on legal rights, and he is focused on mainland traditions, only to learn, like Stannis, that the letter of the law doesn't turn out to mean that much when the other contestant is more charismatic and well-liked as Asha is. Right, and at the same time, Aaron and Balon later on is going to say, we'll see when Theon states that he will not be cheated of his rights. You know, I think George in writing Feast went back to this chapter and saw an opening for Aaron to have some doubts over Asha inheriting the islands due to Aaron's individual and Ironborn cultural chauvinism. This quote from, from Aaron's first chapter, Balon had shaken his head in despair when he heard what Aaron had to tell him of his last remaining son. The wolves have made a weakling of him, as I feared, the king had said. I pray God that they killed him so he cannot stand in Asha's way. That was Balon's blindness he saw himself. He saw himself in his wild, headstrong daughter and believed she could succeed him. He was wrong in that, and Aaron tried to tell him so. No woman will ever rule the Ironborn, not even a woman such as Asha, he insisted. But Balon could be deaf to things he did not wish to hear. So I think we're seeing... Aaron's sexism in that passage from A Feast for Crows, and I think that maybe is speaking a little bit to Aaron's equivocation, if you want to call it that, in terms of whether Theon is going to actually inherit the Seastone Chair as he intends to, as he intends to. I think that Aaron is looking at Theon as this obvious outsider, as this person that he's rejecting inherently within because of how starkish that he appears and at the same time he's in conflict because he thinks that you know ladies can't rule man Asha definitely sets off everyone's gendered insecurities we're going to be seeing much more of that in Theon too when the when the two siblings reunite and all of this just combines to throw Theon off his game to break that smug certainty we were talking about before he finally gets to show his father his quote paper as good as a crown and that's when things really fall apart all through this chapter, we are building up to the introduction of Balin Greyjoy. Theon has pinned all his hopes on Big Daddy, not only politically, but personally. Balin is the authority figure who will dispense ultimate judgment on not only Theon's plan, but Theon's identity. Balin decides who belongs here and who does not. And also all through this chapter, we see signs that he will decide against Theon. <laughs> Gradually, both our POV and we, the audience, realize it's going to go wrong. Like Balin's silence in response to the raven sent by Rob and Jason Malister speaks volumes as does his failure to meet Theon at Lordsport or Pike proper, as does him hosting Theon in grubby, <laughs> ill-maintained rooms in the Bloody Keep. None of these signs are good. Theon takes it all as a personal slap in the face, but his alarm bells really start going off regarding the politics when he sees that the longships are gathering. Because as Dampere says, there's only one reason they ever do that. War. Which means that Balin has already given the go-ahead, and there's no glory for Theon to find here. And I love how George paces that revelation. At first, we might think, like Jason Malister, that the birds were just lost. And then we might think Balin's being cold, 
He's going to sign off on the plan. Maybe and Theon himself will have a reduced role. Only at the very end of the chapter do we learn that none of Theon's dreams will come true. That Balon has his own plan that counteracts Theon's entirely. And I'm harping on like the personal versus political thing because the two are so intertwined. Theon is not just an outsider on Pike. He is seen as having become one of those who brought the rebellion crashing down. And that's why he can't be the heir. Again, you are a great fool if you believe your lord father will ever hand these holy islands over to a Stark. It's not just that Theon has this internal conflict. It's that this conflict is being externalized on the political landscape around him. Pike itself is a stand-in for Balin, all grim, weather-bitten rocks bearing the scars of Robert's attack, and Balin bears those scars too. Theon feels more unwelcome on Pike with every step, because at the heart of it is his father, and the, the chilly welcome he gets from him. All that sets up how this father-son reunion is going to go. And right before the meeting itself, when Theon is literally knocking on the door, we get one last perfect metaphor for how fucked he is now. <laughs> The door was gray wood studded with iron, and Theon found it barred from the inside. He hammered on it with a fist and cursed when a splinter snagged the fabric of his glove. <laughs> Even that little thing is going wrong for him. He's been waiting for this moment since he was a child, and now he's grown, and the songs and stories start to fade. As he tells himself, boys believe nothing can hurt them. Grown men know better. Balin himself, again like Pike, looks so much smaller and older than Theon remembers. But Balin, too, is lost in his own image from stories and songs, what he wants himself to be, what he thinks he should be. He's projecting the old way at all times, despite both his first rebellion's failure and his own mortality staring him in the face. And there's this moment that reveals the futility of it all, the moment in which I would say Balin is the most humanized, and that's when he's talking about the men to whom he lost his first war. They are both dead, Stark and that Robert who broke my walls with his stones. I vowed I'd live to see them both in their graves, and I have. He grimaced. Yet the cold and the damp still make my joints ache, as when they were alive. So what does it serve? <laughs> and just for a second, you can see Balin realizing that this is for nothing. That his resentment, his fueling his crusade has just brought him nothing. There's no joys his enemies turn to ash, because he's still mortal, and the world still hurts, and he's still gotten nothing. Like, Balin's introduction as a whole is just so similar to that of Stannis in this book. <laughs> They're both just grumps sitting on their horrible islands on their respective sides of the mainland, talking about claiming their crowns and how everything sucks and everyone else sucks. And so so this moment where Balin realizes that it's for nothing just for a second, this is, this is the equivalent of Stannis in the prologue, briefly unfurrowing his brow and considering engaging in diplomacy with the Vale for support before Solis walks in and clamps down on that. And the twist here... The reason Balin clamps down is that our POV, Theon, is a walking, talking reminder of everything that Balin is trying to overcome and forget. Like, the fact that Theon is a stranger here is Balin's ultimate shame. He traded all his sons in at some level for his rebellion. Roderick and Meryn died in the fight, and then Theon was taken away. And so Theon's presence opens these old wounds. It's not surprising, really, that Balin is so hostile. And the ways in which he expresses his hostility reveal his biases and obsessions that have led him to this moment. Right from the start, he gets wrong how long Theon has been gone. He says, nine years, is it? And Theon has to tell him, no, it's ten. As if it's not important. As if he hasn't been keeping track, as Theon himself has obsessively every day. It's just this immediate, like, cold water to this face dismissal from Balin towards Theon. And rather than taking the opportunity to close the gap, Balin immediately rips it open wider by asking if Ned Stark made him his own daughter, dressing him in those, those fine velvets. He's challenging Theon's masculinity and Ironborn status alike, saying you're not a man and you're Ned Stark's daughter. Because as on the boat, as on the Miriam, the two are linked. Theon's quest to be seen as, like, evil, sexy Hamlet, <laughs> to borrow from Once Upon a Time in Hollywood, and his quest to get his racist pirate dad to love him, are one and the same. Like, Theon's dandiness doesn't stick out too much on the mainland, 
but there's not exactly much room for a rogue prince slash bright flame type in the Ironborn rogues gallery. And then Balin then shifts to challenging Theon in the gold price versus the iron price, this key idea at the heart of the old way that you take from the world, you don't barter like, like the common folk do. And Balin, of course, is being hypocritical on a number of levels. As I said, his people are, in fact, engaging in the Iron Price. He himself is no longer a raider, so it's not like he's going out stealing stuff. And even when he was, stealing from helpless peasants doesn't make you a badass. But his larger point, that Theon is an outsider, is proven. Because Theon, as he admits, didn't even stop to consider the whole gold price versus iron price thing. This whole central aspect of Ironborn culture. Before returning home and trying to make his best case to Balin. He didn't even think about it. And Balin, I think understandably, considers this proof that, quote, the Starks have made you theirs. That what Rob is really doing here is trying to get a lapdog of his own in power on Pike. And that is just a nightmare scenario for Balin Greyjoy, given how much he cares about the old way. And he anticipated this. That explains the silence in response to the letters. That explains the hosting of the longships before Theon even shows up. Balin has given up on Theon. He has taken Asha as his heir, and he was fully prepared to go ahead with his second rebellion and let Theon die at Rob's hands if need be. That never gets brought up explicitly, but I wonder if, as writing it, George was considering it to be eating away at Theon beneath the surface, and at a subconscious level driving his actions later on in A Clash of Kings, this knowledge that Balin had abandoned him. And it hurts so much because he doesn't have anywhere else to go. Balin is wrong that Theon has made himself a permanent place among the Starks. There's no real future carved out for him there. He was always supposed to go back to the Iron Islands at some point. So what now? As we see with the Malisters, his ironborn blood taints him for many on the mainland. Patrick was going to be friends with Patrick, that little sprout of a life he could have on the mainland away from the old way and his father and the ironborn, but then Jason Malister brings down the hammer on that ever being a thing. So Theon has no way out, no clear identity, no safe anchorage to come back to that opening line. And I think there is a, a critique of the hostage system there in that it has trapped Theon between worlds, useless to both. But sometimes it does work. Sometimes it runs the other way. Baylor Blacktide gets along just fine with his, his host family and tries to bring that culture back to the Iron Islands. I think both general and specific factors are at work here. It matters not just that Theon is an outsider, but that he is reminding Balin of the loss of his older brothers, Balin's two other sons. And that is a wound which Theon unknowingly pokes by talking about how Rob heeds me. I've hunted with him. I've trained with him, shared meat and mead with him, warred at his side. I have earned his trust. He looks on me as an older brother. He, no. His father jabbed a finger in his face. Not here. Not in Pike. Not in my hearing. You will not name him brother. This son of the man who put your true brothers to the sword. Or have you forgotten Roderick and Merrin, who were your own blood? Now again, as Theon points out, this is bullshit. Balin is projecting. Ned did not kill either one of Theon's brothers. Balin bears responsibility for getting them killed in his, quote, stupid rebellion, to borrow from Tyrion on the show. And Theon doesn't point this out, but it's clear in the dialogue. Theon didn't say Rob was like his brother. Theon said Rob looks at Theon like his brother. He's presenting that as an asset politically. Hey, Dad, I'm in with this new Stark King. That can be good for us. We can benefit from this. But Balin can't look at it, can't look at it that way. He can't look at it that way for cultural reasons and for the personal reasons of his own history with his sons. And Balin is calling upon these ties that never meant much to Theon because as Theon thinks to himself, my brothers were assholes. They never treated me with love. Why should I rebuild my whole identity, our whole culture, based on these ties that are meaningless? Why should he give it all up for them? But again, even though Balin is wrong about all the specifics, he's right about his larger point. And his larger point is that Theon now thinks fonder of Rob than of Roderick and Merrin. And that's so terrible for Theon because that's precisely how he meant to be useful to Balin as an in, as a connection point. But that's exactly what makes him repugnant to Balin because Balin doesn't want that bridge built. He doesn't want that connection made with the North. 
And you can you can see that struggle at work with the proposal itself that Theon has about the attack Rob and Balin could do together on the Westerlands, which is pretty sound from a strategic perspective as far as I, a neophyte on such matters, can tell. Ty- Tywin is indeed cut off. Rob will indeed get around the Golden Tooth. Stafford's army is indeed composed of leftovers and raw recruits ready to collapse with a nudge. I mean, the Ironborn couldn't really take the rock as easily as Theon seems to think, but they sure could sack and hold Lannisport, and Rob and Edmure would remain to cut off Tywin's approach. So had Balin gone for this plan, and Edmure not inadvertently allowed Tywin to relieve Tyrion at the Blackwater, the Ironborn might have wound up with the Westerlands as a result of this plan. Of course... Theon envisions the end results not as a bounty for his people. He does not sell it that way. What he's busy envisioning himself is Theon ruling the biggest castle on the <laughs> continent and diving daily into his Scrooge McDuck-like vault of gold because he's Theon. And that focus on himself, and only himself, is what ruins his master plan before it even gets going because both he and Rob fail to anticipate how Balin is going to react to this proposal, how Balin is going to react to the idea of being given a crown for helping out the Starks. The failure is not a military one. It's cultural and political. Theon should have known better. He knows that Balin cares first and foremost about resurrecting the old way. The old way makes no room for Greenland allies like this. The mainlanders are sheep, not friends. And Balin is particularly sensitive on this topic because his last rebellion proved that the sheep can, in fact, kick his ass at will. (laughs) The scars on his castle and the man where his boy once stood are proof of that. But rather than reckon with his mistakes and blind spots, Balin takes refuge in his reactionary politics and pride. I am the Greyjoy, Lord Reaper of Pike, King of Salt and Rock, son of the sea wind, and no man gives me a crown. I pay the iron price. I will take my crown, as Euron Redhand did 5,000 years ago. So we get the fifth king in the War of Five Kings. And this is as direct a critique of power as George makes in the series. Balin turns his back on the best possible move available to him and his people, and chooses a far worse one, purely because that satisfies his ideas about what his power should be. And Theon is doing the same thing on a smaller scale, only for his master plan to be steamrolled by his dad's. And the rest of his story in A Class of Kings will be about how he tries and fails to bridge that gap by increasingly terrible means. All of that is absolutely brilliant, as, as always, man. Uh, I, I think, you know, part of what makes George's writing really good is that is the reasons why people choose the wrong choice. I think when you're looking at Balon Greyjoy from a purely, you know, unemotional detached objective standpoint his choice was easy join with rob stark take the westerlands take a crown gain some allies in the process be able to secure some of the coastland that you could potentially be you know be safe from and you know open yourself up to if if you really want to bring the old way back like an idiot like a racist idiot (laughs) then you have the reach you have dorn you've got the eastern side of the continent of westeros that you can raid up all up and down as we're you going have to all see. of Essos, all of Essos too. You have the entire world that you can do this on, but Balon makes the wrong choice because that's what people do. People don't make rational, detached, cold, unemotional choices. They make choices in the context of their history, of their background, of their families, of their personalities, and that's what. The Lord Reaper of Pike is doing here. He is choosing the wrong stupid action and stupid course of action because 
he's mad and sad. He's mad about losing the war, the Great Joy Rebellion, and he's sad about two of his sons dying. Really, three of his sons, because, I mean, for all of all of Theon brings him, he considers Theon basically dead to him. That's really, I think you call it a, you, you call it a critique of of this mentality, of this ideology, of that, and that George is critiquing that. I think that's absolutely true and very much in evidence throughout this last third of the chapter is that George is criticizing this bare, desolate castle, this bare, desolate island, this pathway that Theon is taking up to Pike itself, which is just empty of anything, people, abandoned mine shafts. Sure, you've got one shepherd and a couple sheep walking around, and that's like the extent of things. I mean, when when Theon gets in the castle itself, it, it's, it's fascinating to me that besides the guardsmen, we have one old woman, Helia, as I said in the synopsis, who's the only person that seemingly is in the employ of Theon Greyjoy besides guardsmen. Like, you know, we talk about like critiques of culture in terms of like their ideology and, you know, George is doing a good job in that. But instead of just, you know, making a, a moral fable, if you want to call it that, of, you know, the Iron Joint are just really bad. The Iron Joint, <laughs> the Iron Born are just super shitty. They super suck. They're really bad. And these are the consequences of being really bad. George is demonstrating the deficit of this culture with the setting, the surrounding, the world building, it all comes crashing down at the end of this chapter. All of that lore that Theon is into, all of that hard way, and people are so hard because of this lifestyle that we've developed in the Iron Islands. It all comes crashing down in the form of Balin Greyjoy, a guy that's going to reject Theon as basically his son, the guy who's fixated on old hurts and wounds, the guy who lost the war, who's going to lose this upcoming war pretty spectacularly yet again, and I don't know if, if this is this is, might be interpret, interpretation on my part, but I kind of get the impression that Balin doesn't give a shit if he's going to lose the war. He's just going to go out swinging because he's hurt on the inside. He's broken on the inside. And George is going to be doing that over and over again in Song of Ice and Fire of broken, damaged people going out and following their pathway, the wrong pathway usually, and coming out for the worse for it. And I think that's a great critique, and I think you bring up this that really well in your the, the last or latter part of this depth, man. Well, thank you, sir. And yeah, he knows it won't serve. He admits it, that net, waiting for Ned and Robert to die brought him nothing. But he's going to go ahead with it anyway because his, his ideology and his backstory leaves him with no other options that he deems acceptable. And Asha will make the ultimate critique of that at the Kingsman, which he says, here are the wages of my father's wars. And just like shows them pine cones and rocks. That's all we got. That's all we won. It was for nothing. But he, he has his justifications. He has his reasons. It's that quote from maybe my favorite movie ever, the French movie Rules of the Game from the 30s. The, te- the most terrible thing in life is everyone has their reasons. Mm-hmm. And so that about takes us to foreshadowing and groundwork. You're on. You're on. You're on, <laughs> King. <clears throat> Pardon me. Mm-hmm. More delicately and soberly, this chapter contains the first mentions of Euron Crow's Eye Greyjoy, who will later appear as a significant antagonist in A Feast for Crows. We see it crop up a couple times early on when Theon shows up at Lordsport. Theon searched for his uncle Euron's silence. Of that lean and terrible red ship, he saw no sign. And then later on, old men were cautious by nature. His father was old now, and so too his uncle Victarion, who commanded the Iron Fleet. His uncle Euron was a different song, to be sure, but the silence did not seem to be in port. 
George packs a lot into even that minor introduction. Like, Theon is currently fearless at this point in the chapter. He thinks he can take on everyone. He's just swaggering all over. But he remembers enough to be afraid of Knuckle Euron. He remembers enough to know that the Crow's Eye is a different and scarier breed of villain than his brothers. He remembers that lean and terrible red ship, the Silence, like a mobile red keep that Euron just takes around with him. We're also, we also see Euron groundwork in this chapter in the Captain of the Miraham, because he is the one in Storm of Swords to inform Rob and the readers of Balin's death. And we also see it in Theon's comment that Greyjoys are only killed on Pike by their brothers. Because, of course, it turns out Euron has killed three of his brothers, so he's one of the most <laughs> prolific kinslayers on Pike. And Theon thinks this right before he gets spooked by that swaying rope bridge, <laughs> which is exactly where Euron will have Balin tossed to his death. So I sincerely doubt George had all the Euron details worked out in his mind at this early stage in the writing. But you can also already see kind of the architecture of the basic Euron outline forming in A Clash of Kings Theon 1. What I think is, is great about Clash and about how Euron's story progresses beyond Clash is George is planting seeds here, obviously, in, in Euron's introduction. And while he, I, I agree that he didn't have the parameters of Euron's story developed, I, I, I really, this is kind of a, a mini theory of mine, but I, I feel like that George first needed to write the the Ramsey, the interactions before he could write like the Euron damp hair interactions and then just kind of turn up to 11 with that kind of psychedelic core that we're going to, that we saw in the forsaken agreed I, I do think that that we have the outlines here that george is definitely going to be working euron in as a major villain and this is this is one of the things i think i find it so fascinating about a clash of kings is that i think that at this stage george finally starts coming up with ideas we get the Mummer's Dragon, which comes up at the end of Danny's House of the Undying Vision. We get all of these Euron mentions as well. So these are the seeds that will eventually become Euron Greyjoy at the King's Boat and a Feast for Crows, and will become Aegon Targaryen and a Dance with Dragons. Agreed completely. I think another little bit of nugget of foreshadowing comes in the, in the Miller's Wife that Theon and Patrick Malister quote-unquote visit en route to Seaguard. Seems like foreshadowing of the woman that Theon will kill along with her children when he returns to the north, that he's also... This Miller's wife, who he's, he slept with before, but he returns much more violently. So I think that's that's part of how George paces Theon's character is what is more just kind of obnoxious and selfish early on, and his story takes a much darker and more violent turn later on. Yeah, yeah. I mean, that Miller's wife stuff is is horrifying when we get to it later in A Clash of Kings, and I do think like here we get kind of the fun story about the Miller going to visit the Miller's wife here. The body story, the more kind of you know wink wink nudge nudge raise your eyebrows, still not exactly. Theon being a great person, he's very kind of cold and clinical about it, but it hasn't gotten violent and murderous yet. Oh, that'll, that'll wait for Theon 5 from Clash of Kings. Uh, this is interesting. So uh, I'm always on the lookout for some more R plus L equals J foreshadowing, and maybe this is something that George put in here to foreshadow it. Uh, you have this line, this horrible wretched line, of course, that Theon says to the, the Captain Star where he says, it's not every man who has the honor of raising a king's bastard. Like, Ned Stark raising Rhaegar Targaryen's bastard, maybe, mm -hmm. possibly, maybe legitimized son. We don't know. We're going to get that in, in, in the Winds of Winter, I'm assuming, at some point. Yeah, I think that's a that's a perfect one of those little uh, backdoor allusions to R plus L equals J. And it's it's interesting, of course, because Theon is thinking about it so horribly and self-centeredly. He's like, oh, you would have the honor of raising my bastard. Well, of course, it wasn't an honor for Ned. And he wasn't thinking mm -hmm. about it in terms of it being a king's bastard, but his daughter's son. And the kind of the pain and torment of the rebellion era and everything he had to sacrifice in terms of his marriage to make it happen. So it's a great way of establishing, just like in Theon's introduction at Garrett's execution, that you have these kind of more grave, somber characters who are taking things seriously. And then Theon, as it stands right now, is taking nothing seriously. And that, that has a, a huge impact on how he treats other people. 
Sometimes the fool's words can conceal a greater truth. All right, so our final little piece of, of foreshadowing, and this will take us into our more larger theory discussion. But George reuses this idea of a merchant ship being a, quote, fat belly tub of a ship in Victorian's Wind's Winter Sample Chapters, because that's the opening line to that chapter. The noble lady was a tub of a ship as fat as wallowing as the noble ladies of the green lands. So George sometimes uh, reuses... Uh, words, even lines, even whole sentences at some points. And I do think it's funny that um, I, don't, I don't think that this is like lazy writing on George's part. I think it's interesting that Theon and Victoria are both comparing merchant ships to fat tubs of a ship. And I think can, calling back to the Ironborn conception of what merchant ships are versus the sleek, wonderful, warring uh, long ship of the Ironborn. But at the same time, I think it's a fun little parallel in terms of the line delivery that both Victoria and Theon give. Exactly. They like thinking about Ironborn ships as superior in the same way they like thinking about themselves as superior people. It's all baked into their mindset, even at that most detailed level. So, shifting into our discussion, we have this line from Theon about how he's probably impregnated the captain's daughter after the amount of times they've had sex. And that stands out as one of those might be throwaway lines from George where it seems to be just a joke but actually hints at a deeper truth. So, that opens up the question, did Theon actually impregnate the captain's daughter and what might come of this? Well, George addressed this at a Sospeak Barn in May of 2000, which someone asked, will we ever see the sea captain star again? I'm referring to that one that Theon was unkind unkind to. That's an interesting way of putting it. After having his way with her. And George says, well, the Mirahem and its captain appear briefly in A Storm of Swords, uh, delivering the news of Balin Greyjoy's death to Rob Stark. Beyond that, I saith not. Hmm. Right. So it's kind of intriguing that George is leaving open this possibility. You, you know, when we talk about this chapter, about Theon's first chapter and about Theon's overall arc, this is a major downward slope for Theon. It's it, like we said at the beginning of this chapter, this is the best that Theon is ever going to have it in all of A Song of Ice and Fire. You know, he starts this chapter getting humiliated by his father and by his uncle. He ends, as according to the first Theon chapter from The Winds of Winter, being chained to a wall and being... Uh, you know, insulted by Stannis Baratheon. So basically he's going for Balon to Stannis. Great. You know, that's just the overall arc with, you know, Ram- <laughs> Ramsay being in between. A delicious Ramsay sandwich. Right. Wow. Oh my gosh. Wow. So awful. I think for me speaking personally, I don't think that Theon's story overall, let me, let me backtrack. Okay. So I am rewatching Battlestar Galactica and Em and I talked about this before we even came on air, even before our little Patreon episode we do. There's this, the first episode of season one of Battlestar Galactica is called 33. I won't reveal any of the plot details, but it's a super fucking downer of an episode, right? The entirety of the episode features lots of innocent people possibly dying, lots of really hard moral decisions that the characters have to make. But the conclusion of the episode is brilliant in my part, in my opinion, because it doesn't end in a downer. It ends on a note of hope. I don't want to say that Theon impregnating the captain's daughter is a note of hope for the girl. <laughs> True. But maybe it's a glimmer of light for Theon overall that, you know, the guy who no longer has his favorite plaything because Ramsay has cut it off has some sort of legacy living on in the form of a son or daughter. That would maybe be good, especially given the amount of terrible, horrible things that Theon is going to suffer throughout a dance with dragons, especially well, really into a store, uh, starting in a storm of swords, but on into a dance with dragons. I, I kind of hope it's the case. I don't know if it actually will be the case. And I also kind of have the question I ask about a lot of these kind of theory discussions, which is how is George going to incorporate that storyline into a 
series, it's a two two final books which incorporate dozens of storylines at this point, major storylines. And this would be a more minor one, I would think. But I think I wonder if if George would have the space to to do it. What do you think? It's really structurally appealing that this is how Theon's story starts. So it would be great if it wrapped up around somehow with his ending. And I like the ironic twist that, yeah, this, this event he never really even thinks about afterwards becomes so crucial because he ends up being castrated. And so every, every fling kind of means more to him at that point. There, there is a, a structural appeal to that for sure. It's interesting to think about how it could play out in terms of the future of the Iron Islands. Obviously, Asha has the thought about using Theon to replay the latecomer scenario from Ironborn history, where the King's Moot, King's Moot is invalidated because Theon wasn't there, so then she could use him as a potential candidate to unseat Euron. So maybe Theon's child is held up as then his heir because he can't produce any more children, or held up as proof that he once was a virile Ironborn man just to <laughs> make people take him more seriously. You know, there's a number of angles to be taken there. What I'm wondering, I wanted to ask you about is how you think that's going to, how you square that with the possibility that Asha might herself be pregnant in A Dance with Dragons because she has right. sex with Carl, then thinks to herself she has to take moon tea but can't before Stannis and the clans attack. So I've thought before maybe that's going to be Theon's heir because he can't produce any more children. Asha's going to hold that forward. But, uh, I mean, George has had scenarios before where there's two kids involved. Maybe, like, those babies are swapped somehow as as, as with Mance's <laughs> baby and, and Gilly's baby. Or maybe one is taken as the heir and one is just like the symbol of hope, like you said at the end. So how do you how do you think that might play out with those two potential Ironborn babies from this generation? Well, here's an idea, right? I mean, we have this this whole idea of the of Rhaegar's son being taken away and being raised as someone else's, right? Raised by another. Is it possible that maybe Asha is pregnant, has a child, and then claims that that child is Theon's child from this daughter or someone else? I could see it, though. It fits with, like, Sam trying to claim that this kid is actually mine and, you know, there could be honor in the lie. That's what right. I was driving at. I could see that for sure. I mean, I, I really hope there's something like that. I think I think Asha, of all the great joys, deserves a happy ending of True. any of them. I mean, <laughs> she's probably the, the best moral one out there. And, you know, I, I'm very excited for her story going forward. You know, if the show is any indication, she does end up leading the Iron Islands at the end of season eight. She is one of the people that's in the council the great the, the great small council that we see at the end of season eight from from the final episode the iron throne I, I i think that asha i do kind of think that maybe asha will inherit the iron islands at some level but i do wonder whether she will take on this child maybe it's her child maybe it's theon's child and raise that child up to be her heir i think that would be a cool way of ending the the iron island story and seeing you know that things can change that the old way is gone that the old way is old extinct gone yeah. and the new way is here and we have we end the iron islands in a better place than we started with i mean that's that it's the boy scout model right leave something better than what you found it as i think that's great i think that might be what george is going for given the bleakness of the iron islands and the great joy storylines in general that he might want to go for a fragile image of hope and might be trying to keep this this kid in his back pocket as that idea because yeah I mean calling it literally the old way is kind of a blunt way of saying I'm going to be sweeping this away at the end of the series this is the yes. old this is the tradition that's going to die and what 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 more perfect symbol as in that great Battlestar Galactica episode of of you know finding hope in a you know a terrible tribulation laden time than this new child being born at the end so I could say that for sure I hope so everyone can hope for a happy ending for Theon Theon yeah I guess Theon in, in some we'll way. take it we'll take it <laughs> <laughs> so I think that about wraps us up for this episode. I had a lot of fun doing this episode. This is great. Thank Me you too. as always for listening. Uh, we, we really appreciate all your guys' uh, ears. And we'll have you guys eat.
we'll have your guys' eyes in two weeks from now, which will be a lot of fun. As always, please rate and review us on Apple Podcasts, Google Play, SoundCloud, Podbeam. I think soon one of these episodes we'll be reading a couple Apple Podcast reviews. We've gotten a couple nice ones the past couple uh, months that are that are worth it. We really appreciate you guys who have, who have led reviews. And if you do want to leave some reviews in the, in the near term, start writing them down and putting them up on Apple Podcasts because we will uh, we'll, we'll be reading a few here in the, co- in the next couple of weeks. Absolutely. Check out our Patreon if you haven't already at patreon.com forward slash notacast A-S-O-I-A-F. We have our first couple of Fever of Dream reviews up and we'll have our, our uh, takedown slash uh, <laughs> praising of Zack Snyder's Watchmen up there soon. Follow us on Twitter at notacast A-S-O-I-A-F or shoot us an email at notacast A-S-O-I-A-F at gmail.com. You can find me at poor Quentin on Twitter. And you can find me at Brenda Beavish on Twitter, Brenda Beavish on Reddit, and my website is Wars and Politics of Ice and Fire. We want to give a thank you and shout out to our high lords and ladies on Patreon Lord of the Squishers and Warden of the Deep, Lord Clint Esquire, the Wolf in the West, Sir Sorcedelica, Lady Veneris of the House Colgarian, the first of her name, the overworked Queen of the Pencils, the Eraser, and the First Draft, Queen of Monochrome, Devotee of the Great Game of Thrones, Portraitist of the Realm, Lady Realist of the Seven Kingdoms, Creator of Arts and Maker of Drawings. Lady of a Thousand Words, Septon Eastwood of Introvert Isle, Septon Marybold, the Shoeless Sage, Lady Madeline Rivers, Justiciar of the Trident, Sister Winter, Lady of the Wolfswood, Nissy the Elusive, Warden of the Neck, Defender of the North and Keeper of Secrets, Sandy the Dragon, Blood of Queen Daenerys and Lady of Jameson, Lady Britt, Bastard Mistress of Harrenhal, and our newest High Lords, Sir Thomas, the Raven Knight, Lord of Blackwood, and Sir Tim, the Knight who was guided by voices. So thank you as always to our High Lords and Ladies, and a special welcome to Sir Thomas and Sir Tim. Yeah, thanks, Thomas and Tim. We really appreciate you guys' new patrons, and thank you to our existing High Lords and Ladies. So, join us next week for A Clash of Kings, Daenerys 1, as we finally check in with the Mother of Dragons and her tiny band of followers wandering the desert. No religious imagery here at all whatsoever. (laughs) Moses. And we will be joined in the Red Waste by a new special, special guest, Mighty Isabel. Yes, indeed. We talked about having her on way back during the George R. R. Martin Fire and Blood event that we attended. We talked about having her on for this chapter and been looking forward to it ever since. So that's going to be a great time. It shall be indeed. So thank you so much for listening. Thank you to our patrons for supporting us. And we will see you guys next week.